Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ. A very good evening and welcome into SENZ. Mark Watson with you this time in 24 hours. Guns N' Roses not too far away from taking the stage in Wellington. Looking forward to getting down there tomorrow. They then come play Auckland on Saturday night. For me, well, it's been a 30-odd year journey with them. It's very much a photo album, just a chance to sit back and reflect on the last 30 years. Uh, with you through to 11 o'clock tonight, telephone numbers 0800 150 That's 0800 150 You can text the program here on 8833. Right, we are going to have an eclectic mix of sport on the program tonight. We're going to talk baseball. We are going to catch up with the Tuatara catcher, Rob Emery, who comes out of the San Francisco Giants. We're going to do that after 8 o'clock. Uh, Thomas Keller, rugby journalist out of South Africa, going to reflect on a South African perspective on some of the big news stories from around the world, the changes in coaches. Again, just a reflection on the South African season and where they think they are uh, heading into next year's Rugby World Cup. Plenty of opportunity to, to look back on the FIFA Football World Cup. Portugal doing an absolute demolition on Switzerland and Spain getting knocked out by Morocco. I thought Spain might beat Morocco and I thought Switzerland might upset Portugal, but I knew there would be an upset somewhere along the way in that top 16. After all, this is football. Portugal looking brilliant. Cristiano Ronaldo not coming on until the 74th minute, then throws the toys because he is the man, but he's no longer the man. And it must be tough for him. Uh, 38 years of age, but he just doesn't quite have the legs that he once had. Great guy to bring off the bench, though. Brilliant at the set piece. Can't see them though changing their lineup with how effective they were this morning against the Swiss. Scott Worthington's going to join us at 7.30. Scott is an event director. He runs a race down in the South Island at a place called Welcome Rock. It's known as the Revenant, and it's arguably the toughest adventure race in New Zealand, one of the toughest adventure races in the world. It's approximately 200 kilometres, 16,000 metres 
of vertical climbing. That's climbing to Mount Everest from sea level to the top twice. You've got 60 hours to finish the event. You've got four laps. Only five people in the history of the event have finished it. Why? Japanese television crew coming down to cover the event as well. Great opportunity for New Zealand to be promoted throughout Asia and around the world. So something slightly different around about 7.30 tonight. Shortly, we are going to catch up with Martin Cross, the voice of international rowing. Martin is an Olympic champion himself in 1984 with the Great Britain 8 bronze medal in 1980 in Moscow in the sport of rowing. And the reason we're doing that is that Mahe Drysdale recently, or over the weekend, last weekend, won the Thomas Callagher Medal, which is the most prestigious medal world rowing has to give out. And it goes to an athlete who has retired for basically their services to rowing based on performance and also based on their attitude off the water. And just another feather in the cap for Mahe Drysdale. So Martin Cross out of the UK very shortly here on the programme. Ben Francis producing tonight. Let's bring Ben into the programme. Evening to you, Ben. Hey, mate. How are you? Good. I'm in the strange studio tonight. I don't feel like I've got the same resource. But, hey, that's what you have to do. You've got to be a little bit um, ad hoc at times. Yeah, you do. It's a bit, bit different. Quite a different setup from this side of the wall as well. Yeah, I'm just staring through the window there. I see we've got former Prime Minister John Key in the office. They've got a... Um, using an opportunity to use the studio, a commercial opportunity for them. So, oh, fair enough. Yeah, we can understand why we've been demoted, eh? Oh, that's right, mate. I've always been demoted, mate. I've been married for 14 years, Ben. <laughs> can I have that humour these days? Can I have that bloke humour? I'm going to get myself into trouble. I hope not. I always say it with tongue-in-cheek. I'm happily married. Must say it's uh, good to be back with you as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what's been going on in your world, big guy? Oh, well, you saw me on Sun. Was it Sunday? Was yeah, Sunday, I saw wasn't you it? out at Mirawai, yep. So, yeah, my partner went surfing and she did quite well survived which is the main thing yeah it's pretty gnarly up there at the moment it has just changed to an easterly though which means it will be offshore on the west coast which means it'll be very very good surfing the by the end of the week oh that's good so we might have might be out there this weekend then yeah absolutely all right okay let's talk rowing as i mentioned we had mahe drysdale winning the thomas Callagher medal now drysdale is a three-time olympic medalist he won gold in london in 2012 and then that photo finished to win gold in rio he was sick and won a bronze in beijing back in 2008 he's also a five-time world champion and now the thomas keller medal as i mentioned in my introduction is without doubt the most prestigious award that the international rowing federation gives out to try and put this in context and provide a bit of perspective and give an international point of view on Drysdale and this particular award. Uh, uh, Martin Cross joins us. Martin is a gentleman that I worked with at the Tokyo Olympics. Um, wonderful commentator, just a great human being. Martin Cross, good evening, good morning, welcome. I'm great, Mark. It's lovely to talk with you. Yeah, firstly, um, uh, who was Thomas Keller? Who was Thomas Keller? So, um, Tommy Keller was... a uh, long-term president of World Rowing, and uh, he was very influential in the sport, very influential in Olympic sport, and he was inspirational, I think, to all the athletes. So the Keller family, um, based in Switzerland, decided to endow in his memory uh, a solid gold medal to um, each year 
to the athlete. That's the school bell that you can hear in the background, by the way. That's all right. To the to the athlete to the athlete um, who is had an exceptional career and who has made a real impact on the sport uh, in terms of getting on with their uh, competitors, in terms of being interested in uh, making the sport, allowing the sport to move on. So that's endowed each year. And actually, I sit on the committee that awards it as well. So, um, it, and that's been a real honour for me. So it, it is uh, a very special award. It started back in 1990. The first award was uh, the Little Norwegian Alf Hansen, who Tommy Keller admired, and it's been going ever since. So when did Mahe Drysdale's name sort of come into the discussion, um, and was it an easy decision? Um, no, it wasn't an easy decision. Um, th- there are some exceptional uh, rowers out there. Um, so Mahe's name was in the frame along with Richard Schmidt, who is the great German oarsman, um, Olympic champion in the men's eights. Elle Logan from the USA. Uh, she's got three Olympic gold medals in the women's eight and uh, in the American women's eight. And that's, you know, sensational. Um, another Kiwi, Grace Prendergast, of course, um, in terms of her pedigree, we all know about that. And then um, Heather Stanning from Great Britain, double Olympic champion. So um, the, the field was really, really competitive, I think, for that uh, medal this year. And so why Mahe Drysdale? Why did he end up getting the nod? Well, um, I think Mahe has got all the qualities that it takes to, to be a Thomas Keller medal winner. I think you mentioned his uh, Palmares, the uh, five world titles, and uh, the two Olympic golds, one Olympic bronze. So that puts him in there. The longevity of his career, um, you know, Mahe started to compete back in 2004 at the Athens Olympics. That's another criteria. Um, I think the relationship with his competitors, one of the things about Mahe uh, is that he's, you know, tough racing on the water, but so much friendly off it with his, you know, immediate competitors, people like Olaf Tufta, his top shop, uh, Andre Sinek, Alan Campbell, uh, all of Daniel Martin, um, who so narrowly um, got that silver medal in Rio. So he's a great friend and competitor and that really is something that the sport of rowing loves to see that those relationships the camaraderie off it he's been involved in rowing and sculling he was in the kiwi eight he was rowing in the 2004 olympics so he's adept with one blade as, as well as two blades mm. and then he's, he's a spokesperson for um causes with him rowing uh he, he will always come and talk very respectfully to the people at world rowing about issues that he thinks need attention so he's really across everything and those are the criteria of the thomas keller medal and and it's rare to find somebody like mahe that that does stuff like that mm. fifth new zealander to win it because in 2016 caroline everswindell georgina everswindell and then in 2018 eric Bar- eric murray and hamish bond so um, yeah, it, 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 it's it's a wonderful reflection on New Zealand and New Zealanders as a whole. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, uh, 
those Kiwis have been iconic, not just in terms of New Zealand. You mentioned the Everswid Dells, but, you know, in terms of being inspirational to uh, people in sport in general, and particularly women in sport, I think, um, with the Everswind Dells, uh, it, it's been uh, a real inspiration. Uh, and, and Murray and Bond, they got the double award together. Um, they're obviously an iconic duo. But it is... <laughs> I think if you add, added up the nationalities that have won the Thomas Keller Medal Award, I think you'd see Kiwis right at the top of the pole. Mm, absolutely. So those that uh, missed out narrowly lost to Mahe this year, do they go back into the discussion next year because they still have been retired for less than five years? Yeah, it's a good shout. Um, we're we're going to take a look at all of those uh, four that uh, missed out uh, to Mahe. Um, I think it will be nice to see the U.S. Women's Aid get some recognition, and that's why El Logan is in there, the three-time Olympic champion. It would be nice to see the German Men's Aid, that's been such an iconic mm. part of our sport, get some recognition at all. So that, that's why Richard Schmidt um, is in there. So they go forward for next year's uh, consideration, along with any others, um, so it, it's unusual that people will retire from the sport. That's another criteria for the Thomas Keller medal, that you've actually retired from the sport. Um, and, and it's unusual that people will retire the year before the Olympics. So probably uh, it will be a similar field next year for the medal. Mm. OK, now, now that Mahi is out of the game and didn't get selected for the last Olympics, where is single sculling at the moment? Who's the next generation coming through? Who's the next big thing? Oh, that's a great shout, uh, Mark. Well, the next big thing is this enormous German. He, he kind of looks a bit like a Bond villain. Um, he is about six foot eight. He's got blonde hair. Um, he is Ollie Zeidler. He's come into rowing quite recently for the world of swimming. Uh, he was a, a good sort of 200-meter freestyler. And um, his grandfather won an Olympic gold medal in the Munich Olympics so he's got a rowing heritage but he sensationally won the 2019 World Rowing Championships in one of the best races that I've ever seen and then this year in the World Championships in Rochice, the Czech Republic he also won the world title um, by a margin actually and he's an interesting guy not least because when he was in Tokyo he blew out and uh, didn't make the A final and everyone expected he'd be favourite for gold. So there's there's him, there's uh, the great Norwegian sculler, um, Chettle Borsch. So uh, new Dutchman on the scene, Melvin Tweller, who beat Oli Seidler on his home course in Munich in the Europeans, but couldn't manage to do the same in the World Championships. So, you know, there's a great uh, field in, in single scullers. And Mahe Drysdale, he was out of the World Championships in the Czech Republic, um, for the, what I call the Legends race with his great buddy, Andre Sinek, the Czech sculler. And they were watching all these new scholars and uh, they were really impressed with the quality and uh, the speed with which they're moving. Are they going faster than Mahe? I mean, you don't officially have world records because of the ever-changing conditions of courses and some of the geographical stuff, but you do have the world's fastest times. I mean, is Drysdale's time still stack up? Well, yeah, it's interesting, actually. The world's best mark is... is <laughs> Another Kiwi sculler, Robbie Manson, who uh, I guess he retired prematurely. Yeah. But um, these guys are right on that pace. And if they had a decent following wins, uh, which you need to, to break the world's best time, then uh, they would definitely 
be right on that mark. And I think, you know, the sport of rowing does move on year by year. And, you know, as fast as Mahe was, these new guys are, are really pushing the envelope on, on, that, uh, on that mark. So I think, you know, given a good following win, they'd probably break the world's best time. And just quickly on the women's side, Caroline Florin, uh, the Dutch um, single sculler, and we didn't necessarily see the best of Emma, Emma Twig this year, but is she now the athlete to beat heading towards Paris? Oh, she's had an amazing season, Caroline Florin. She's definitely the athlete to beat. Un- unbeaten in the season, you know, she's she's come up against anyone. Uh, and, you know, you saw her race Emma Twig, Kiwi, who, as you say, I think, you know, post-Olympics, uh, she hadn't had the best of seasons. She couldn't race at Henley and Lucerne because of COVID. So um, Caroline got Emma at a good time. But I think the rivalry between those two going forward to Paris is going to be sensational. And it's going to be either one or the other for the gold medal in Paris, I'm sure. Martin Cross, as always, lovely to have you on the programme. I'll let you back to your teaching duties. I've heard the second bell go. I don't want you getting the detention, my good man. Cheers, Mark. I'm going to get right back there now. Fantastic. Martin Cross there, Olympic Games gold medalist, um, part of the selection panel for this wonderful achievement for Mahe Drysdale. Mahe Drysdale picking up the Thomas Keller medal, going right back to 1990 when Alf Hansen first won it. You run through some of the names. Uh, You've got Steve Redgrave, the great Steve Redgrave uh, out of Great Britain. Redgrave won it in 2001. Matthew Pinsent won it in 2005. I'm just trying to read out some of the names that New Zealanders might be familiar with. You had the great Canadian Silken Lauman, Kathleen Heddle of Canada, along with Lauman in 1999. Just seen who's won it in more recent times. Yeah, Eric Murray, Hamish Bond, wasn't awarded in 2020. So just another another um, gong for the great Mahe Drysdale. Let's just hope that we can continue you mentioned Robbie Manson there. Manson, world's fastest time. Just never could quite get it right, could he, in the big finals. I think fifth at world champs. And, um, yeah, and then uh, I guess you go back to Rob Waddell back in 2004, winning the single skulls. Uh, Eric Verdonk, I think, won a bronze, didn't he, in 1988. So I've got such a rich history in single skulls. I, I think that individual rowers should always get it over team rowers. I think team, you can lean on other people individual it's lonely it's only you it's you versus you I think when you've got other people in the boat there's that incentive to never give up I think it's when yourself you can probably be a little bit soft at times because you're only leaving yourself down and therefore I think it makes it a lot harder from the album 10 tell you what how do you beat an album like that on debut how do you come out with an album that can live up to what you do in your first album always a big challenge for a lot of rock bands but Versus was a very different album. Great album in its own right. Did well, Pearl Jam. Right, you're listening to SENZ, Mark Watson with you. Just having a bit of a think during the break about Mahe Drysdale's place in New Zealand history. Is there a sport tougher than rowing? Swimming's up there. I think swimming, because you have to start so young, I think is one of the hardest sports. But rowing is absolutely brutal. I know that the pain and the time that Lisa Carrington puts into kayaking, the likes of the Ben Fooies, the Ian Ferguson's, Paul McDonald's, tough, tough sports. And let's not kid ourselves, some sports are just tougher than others, aren't they? I mean, sports like golf, sports like lawn bowls, they're technical, but they're a lot of fun. I'm not sure that when you're doing your key workouts and rowing and 
kayaking and athletics, etc., swimming, that you can never actually ever describe it as fun. You do suffer. You go into the hurt box. As I like to say, you're breathing razor blades, breathing through your eyelids when your heart rate's that high and you're just trying to get oxygen into any part of the body. Drysdale have to go down as one of the greats, finally, of New Zealand sport. Do we weigh it purely on Olympic Games gold medals? I'm not sure you do. What's well, Carrington won five gold. Snell's won three. Ferguson, Ian Ferguson won three. Did he win four? No, he won four, didn't he, Ferguson? He won four gold medals. The great Daniel Loder won two. I still think that might be our greatest Olympic achievement. Loder winning the two and 496. Swimming at the Olympic Games is the biggest, in the first week of the Olympics, is the biggest sport. It's a truly global sport. Uh, the Blue Ribbon events are the two and the 400. It's a sport that's governed by technique, backed up by a hell of a lot of hard work, and Loder did it in Moana Pool in Dunedin. Terrible times of the morning in a pretty crappy pool and some very cold weather. And he won the two and the 400 double. And the great Ian Thorpe didn't manage to do that in the year 2000 in Sydney. He had to wait four years later because the Dutchman van den Hugenbaan beat him in the 200. So it just puts in context, it's not an easy thing to win the two and 400 freestyle. And Daniel Lydia probably just doesn't get the credit, does he? Because maybe he didn't have a personality that endeared himself to the New Zealand public. But look, you might have some thoughts. Um, I know this is sort of what I call fast food type talkback sort of lists. But yeah, just Mahe Drysdale, who are some of our hardest and greatest athletes. And do you have to have the Olympic rings hovering over you to fall into that category? Because let's be honest, there are some sports and some athletes that don't get the opportunity to go to the Olympic Games. But... I think Drysdale, if he hadn't got sick in 2008, would have been a three-time Olympic champion in one of the Blue Ribbon events in one of the toughest sports on the planet. You can text us here on double eight double three. Speaking of which, very shortly, Scott Worthington on the programme, we're going to talk about an event called The Revenant. 200 kilometres. This is staged down... About 45 minutes south of the Queenstown Kingston Garston Highway in a place called Welcome Rock. It's an adventure race. It's 200 kilometres. It's 16,000 metres of vertical climbing. It's four laps. You've got 60 hours to do it. And you've got a few little things you also have to do along the way. So you've got to hit a certain number of checkpoints on each lap. So you've got to be a very, very good navigator. So you've also got to have the mental side of it, which gets a lot harder when you're physically fatigued. Uh, Dave's just texted. He said, hi, Mark, Erin Baker is our toughest sportsman. Yeah, look, I think Erin Baker would be right up there. She won the Hawaii Ironman twice. I think that's the equivalent of any Olympic Games gold medal. Um, hundred. What did I say? I think she won 102 of 120 races she started in. She won world championships across every distance. And I think she'd be very, very competitive today and amongst women athletes of today. In fact, I still think she'd be winning Hawaii today. So without a doubt, Erin Baker certainly falls into that category and never went to the Olympic Games, of course. Her sister, Philippa Baker, um, also a multiple world rowing champion. We'll take a break. Up next, we're talking adventure racing. The Revenant, Scott Worthington. Yes, this time tomorrow night, I will be sitting in the Cape Town in Wellington and I will be settling in to watch Guns N' Roses. Looking forward to the next 24 hours. It'll be, I think, the fifth time I've seen them in concert. As I said, it's just a scrapbook over the last 30 years. Company of me long rides over the years. 
bring back some wonderful memories, certain songs. It's amazing the power of music. Same with smells. Certain smells can just take you back in time, can't they? Liniment always takes you back of being in a rugby changing rooms when you're a young fella. I always say this though, never play good music when you've had a relationship breakup, okay? Let her take your heart, that's assuming that she's dumped you, but never let her take your music. You don't want to put a good song on and remember those times, do you? Go and put some crap music on. Anyway, that's just my philosophy for the night. Uh, Let's talk some excellence. Let's talk some endurance racing. Let's talk hard. Let's talk the Revenant. Arguably the toughest endurance race in New Zealand, certainly one of the toughest endurance races in the world. This is running from the 19th of January through to the 22nd. It's been staged in Welcome Rock, which is around 45 minutes south of Queenstown on the kingston garston Highway. It's a total distance of 60 kilometres. It's 16,000 metres of vertical climbing, so it's basically starting from sea level and climbing to the top of Mount Everest twice in a time limit of 60 hours, four laps, but having to hit certain checkpoints along the way. It's its fifth year, and only four athletes in history have finished. The event director is Scott Worthington. He joins us on the programme. Scott, good evening. Welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, Scotty, let's go back four or five years. Uh, Why did you decide that there was room in the market for such a brutal event? Um, I suppose I didn't really think about the marketplace, to be honest. I I really, it was really a selfish thing. Um, I tried to get into the Barclay Marathons uh, three times. Um, Anyone that knows that race knows it's a sort of cryptic, secret way of getting in. Um, It's not a sort of normal entry process. And anyway, I never got even got a reply um, for any of the letters that I wrote. And so in the end, I thought, well, I'll just create my own. Um, New Zealand's got pretty... um, interesting and tough terrain so yeah that was the motivation um and obviously it's only a small field so we don't really encroach on any other races that are around um so yeah that that was the that was the reason for creating it okay just give us a little bit of background though on the barclays marathon because i think people have heard it but might just need you to provide a little bit more background so they then get a bit of an understanding of um the basis of your event Okay, so so uh, the format for the Barclay, which is what we use, the format, um, is uh, they have um, five laps, we have four. But fundamentally, it's a orienteering style uh, lap. In other words, you have to get um, uh, checkpoints in, se- in sequence. Uh, you navigate with map and compass only. And the Barclay's been going, I think it's 1986 was when it started. Um, and as of... Last year, it's usually held around sort of April in Tennessee in the USA. Um, I think since 1986, they've had 15 finishes, um, and some of those finishes have done it, have finished twice. So it's not 15 people; it's actually 15 finishes um, since 1986. So um, a fairly difficult event, obviously. And is it the same course every year? So do you go back and you go, right, no, I came up slightly short, but I know the course now and I'm pretty confident next year I can go just that little bit further and it's almost like a three or four year plan to try and complete it or does it course change every year? No, you, you've hit it on the head there. Fundamentally, um, we leave the course 
very in some years it's been exactly the same as the previous year um, and other years it's been just very minor changes and the whole idea is just what you said um, if something's going to be possible uh, it, it's easy to make it impossible if every year we keep changing it um, so that's not the spirit of it the spirit is that you learn from your mistakes you come back and you hopefully improve um, having said all that um, this year is the first year that we've made some substantial changes and that's primarily because, I say, we have had four finishes and three of those were actually in one year. Um, so it probably, you know, sort of skews it a bit um, in terms of how many we get every year. Um, but some of the guys uh, uh, and girls have said they'd, they'd like to come back and give it another crack. Um, and so we changed it just a little bit um, for them to feel like it's it's fresh but not enough that if you've done it in the past you lose all your gained experience so it's always just a fine fine line between getting it right and getting it wrong how did you find the location welcome rock and then how did you determine um the length and the duration of each lap and primarily where you would then put the checkpoints um, so got onto uh, Welcome Rock because the property owner Tom O'Brien, who, who runs the race with me now, um, put on a, a wee event there on on his property, um, and uh, we got chatting. Uh, it was a, it was a run. Got chatting, and he he asked me, he sort of said, you know, I wouldn't mind putting on a much longer event. Um, come back to me if you've ever ever got any ideas. And it took two years for me to get back to him um, with this idea, um, and he bought into it immediately. And so that's. That's the that's the reason why, or that's that's the sort of um, that's the, the the property that we run it on, uh, and it's because of, as I say, that 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 running um, relationship that we we forged six seven years ago mm. now, I suppose. Now people can enter as two person teams, so you can do it with someone else. It, you, you, everybody still has to do the entire sixty kilometres. You've got to hit those cutoff times for each lap, but you can ultimately work together, can't you, on this? Yeah, I mean, uh, so there's, there's, there's two two sides to that. So you can enter as a, a solo individual or you can enter as a two-person team. And the spirit of that was really because uh, I know that people like to train with other people and maybe someone's strong at navigation and someone's you know weak but strong somewhere else. So that was just to encourage people that if they wanted to train and, and enter as a, as a team, it uh, was a little bit of an incentive to get onto the start line. Um, ultimately, when they're on the... On the start line, and they're in the race. There is no difference other than the two the two team members have got to stick together. Mm. But really, what you find is it's sort of the same at the Barclay is that most people prior to the race team up anyway. They mm. chat with each other and they find out what their strengths and weaknesses are. Especially the guys that've done it before, newbies will tend to, you know, try and get one of those to see what they see if they can get into my head and see where you know, if they can work out where I might be placing or changing a checkpoint. So. Really, it's honestly a couple of, quite often, two or three big, huge groups travelling around at the, in the first lap, mm. uh, after which they start splitting up. Now, Scott, as we said, it's 60 hours, but there are four laps, and each lap has a cut-off time of 15 hours. So if you go 15 hours in one second, you are out of the race. Does each lap have a different set of checkpoints? Um, so just, just a slight uh, correction there. So the, the first cut-off is actually at 30 hours, after which it becomes 15-hour intervals. Okay. And the reason we did that is simply to give somebody, just as you said, you know, you come in at 15 hours in one minute, 
uh, you theoretically would be out after that first lap. But, you know, quite often people will go quicker on the second lap because they now know where the checkpoints are. Um, so, no, the checkpoints don't change. They stay the same um, But uh, during the race. But um, people make a, a pretty common mistake of, you know, creating their route because they have to choose their own route uh, between the, there's no tracks or anything like that. So they get a map with the checkpoints mm. on it and then they, they, they work out their route. Um, and it's a pretty common mistake that people will choose one route, thinking the route's the same in both directions. And, Mark, you've been a good runner, and you know as well as I do, you know, these people are complaining about an out-and-back course. Um, you know, when you when you return and go in the other direction and what was up is now down and vice versa, it's a different run. Mm. Um, well, add navigation, and um, you're coming at a checkpoint, you know, maybe an hour, two hours between a checkpoint. When you come at from the other direction and maybe at night, it's a new challenge. Yeah, and of course there is the sleep deprivation longer you go. Clearly the mental fatigue does kick in. So the, so the athletes that have finished, what have been, what has been their makeup? Is it just this about being a good runner? I mean, those that have finished, describe, I describe them as athletes. Yeah, um, so I think the answer to your question there is you just have to be a good runner, and the answer to that is no you've got to be a complete package, which means that you've got to be able to, because it's an unsupported race, um, you've got to be able to navigate, and all, all four that have finished have been you know, pretty good navigators. Um, you've certainly got to be able to, to um, you manage sleep, uh, your food, um, the logistics in between, what you're going to do each lap, that sort of thing. And that comes from a sort of adventure racing style background. And again, all four that have finished, um, are people that have done a lot of stuff in the backcountry, generally unsupported, some mm. of the solo. Um, so really that's the common denominator, is that they've certainly all got endurance backgrounds uh, and some running backgrounds, but the, the, the key thing is they're not pure runners. They're all, they're mm. all people that um, have got good experience mm. in the backcountry. You know, it's old-fashioned compasses, no GPS, no sort of modern technology whatsoever. From a risk management point of view, um, I'd imagine that is a challenge as an event organiser? Yeah, it is. It is. We're relatively lucky being a lap race. Um, you know, it's just over 200 kilometres, a complete race, but each lap's just over 50 kilometres, and it's fundamentally a circle. So the start finish is pretty much in the middle of that circle, um, which means that they're actually never that far away from us. Um, so the way we handle it is uh, we have a very small group of volunteers and they're pretty much hand-picked, um, a group of people that are all good athletes and all backcountry people. Most of them have done a God zone or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and we send them out and they're out on the course um, continuously uh, the, the uh, competitors don't know they're there necessarily and, and looking at them but believe me um, we had uh, Ian Evans finish the race year before last um, and he went out on the last lap by himself uh, he went through the night um, and with my maths and all the reckeys that I've done on the course we went to a particular checkpoint expecting to see him at a particular time he was seven minutes late so, you know, when you consider that at that stage you've been out there for coming on to 50 hours and yet we were within seven minutes of, of knowing exactly where he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a bit of a science um, and it takes a, a, quite a bit of organisation. But, 
we choose not to use trackers and things like that. The athletes don't want them. They like that old-style feel. But believe me, we know where they are. Mm. Uh, Scott, this year, well, this this year's race, there's been interest from a Japanese television crew to come over and cover this event and then wonderful way to promote New Zealand. Tell us a little bit about NTT and what they're wanting to do. Yeah, um, yeah, a, a gentleman um, in New Zealand gave me a call. He was a production company working for um, the, the Japanese um, government or public broadcaster, and they have a race. Uh, sorry, they have a, a TV program called the called Great Race, and um, asked if uh, they could film us. So, um, yeah, it's great. I've had a quick look at it. The last race they had uh, was pre-COVID. They had this well will be their first race that they've shot since COVID. But they did the spine race, which is pretty well known in, in England. Um, had a look at that footage. They do a fantastic job. So, yeah, good for the race, good for New Zealand, uh, good for Southland, obviously, who really get behind our event. Great South are, are, are really good supporters of the event because we, we, you know, we do showcase the, the beautiful country and the high country, especially of the area. Mm. And, Scott, what sponsors have you got on board? Have you got some commercial partners that have got involved? Yeah, look, right from day one, we've had a very, very good sponsor. Um, I, I was lucky enough to get um, a Volkswagen Commercial. I've always had a good relation with the Good Track Group. And, um, you know, it's one of those things, do you get multiple sponsors and then everyone gets, you know, a small amount of exposure or do you get hopefully someone that takes the, the one spot and gets all the exposure and, um, and that's what they've done. So, yeah, we've got one sole sponsor, Volkswagen Commercial. Um, fantastic people. Um, yeah, they, they, yeah, we really do have a good um, good relationship with them. Okay, Scott, just for people listening to this, just confirm the date that this or next year's race is on because it is in January and how people might be able to follow it if they're just interested. Okay, it's on, yeah, the, the race briefing starts on the Thursday the 19th and the, the dates are set between 19 and 22. Uh, that's obviously if someone does finish. Uh, it could, could obviously often finishes much earlier than that last day because basically there's nobody left. Um, so coverage uh, is live um, and it's cast, broadcast across our, our um, Instagram and, and Revenant pages, which both those addresses are on our website. Um, and we also use a gentleman who does adventure racing uh, commentary um, uh, called AR Coverage. Uh, and uh, he will be um, along with our own post, but he will basically be, con- you know, controlling and and uh, making sure that um, that coverage is is up to date. And, and it is. We we make sure that, um, and even though the competitors don't don't know it, we know where they are. And posts um, and live coverage is uh, constant throughout the, the whole race. Scott Worthington, been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the program. All the very best in January with the fifth edition of the Revenant. Thanks, Mark, and have a, um, a, a very good Christmas. Will do. Scott Worthington, the hard man in his day, and runs one of the toughest events. Uh, I know Scotty well. He, <laughs> this is not for the faint-hearted. This is a tough, tough race, but for some reason, people want to go and do it. People want to go back year and year and see if they can finish it. Only four people in history. Check it out. It is called The Revenant. It is 13 minutes away from 8 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. minutes away from eight. We will talk to Atara Baseball coming up after eight o'clock. They take on 
The Melbourne Aces, Friday night, North Harbour Stadium, 7 o'clock, and then two games on Saturday, a double hit at 3 o'clock and 7, and then the game on Sunday at 11 o'clock. Nice to come in with a bit of Kiss. Kiss have their introduction at their concerts. You wanted the best, you got the best. Guns N' Roses, which is happening tomorrow in Wellington and in Auckland, they come out with a similar thing. You want the best. Well, they didn't make it. And then, of course, you get Guns N' Roses, but... I do love the introductions. I think they're always done really, really well at a lot of good concerts. Just gets the old adrenaline going, doesn't it? Gets the crowd all revved up, gets the crowd all pumped up. Uh, look, we've just had some texts come in off the back of that interview. I've got Dave saying, I've qualified for Mont Blanc. Um, admittedly, a few haircuts ago, that's an endurance race. It's considered to sort of be the Holy Grail, the Super Bowl of adventure running. I think it's in August, the town of Chamonix every year. Um, it's around about 170 kilometres alpine run. Um Dave also wanting to know, is this race the revenant for professionals or can anyone have a crack? No, look, anyone can have a crack. You've just got to be good. It's not a race for fools. This is not a race you can go in half-hearted into. The first one lap alone is 50 kilometres. You are going to do 4,000 metres of vertical climbing. I'm not talking about the downhill side of it. We're talking just up. You've got to be a good navigator. So it is there. Uh, most people don't expect to finish it. Most people are just seeing how far they can go. So Dave... Encourage you, get fit. I'm not sure what your fitness levels are like. Get out there, get in touch with Scotty, get yourself down to Queenstown, enter the Revenant, and ask yourselves questions of greatness, my friend. Um, Glenn texted earlier, we were just asking, we had an interview with Martin Cross regarding Mahe Drysdale picking up the Thomas Keller Medal, the highest honour in rowing, basically for what he achieved on and off the water. And so I just sort of put it out there, where does he sit amongst our all-time greats, Mahe Drysdale, across all sport? And Glenn steps in and said, what I, Snell is the best without doubt in my opinion. Very few people row. I rate Hamish Bond, however. Yet few people row because it's so damn hard. And I think that sometimes um, you've got to realise that. It's not an accessible sport, but also you've only got to look at how many kids turn up to the Marty Cup. So you have 4,000 kids at the Marty Cup, 95% dropout because it is just such a brutal sport. A uh, few people end up swimming seriously because it's just such a brutal sport. Why do so many people play golf? Because it is fun. And so you could argue, yeah, is there the critical mass? Or those that are left standing are just phenomenal athletes. So you're, ex- you know, you're extraordinary amongst an extraordinary group of people who are physically and mentally incredibly tough. Hamish Bond, absolutely superstar. Two-time Olympic champion, then, of course, three times with the eight. Certainly goes down as one of the greatest of all time. But sometimes Hamish Bond and Mahe Drysdale, like anything, you need to have 10 years out of the sport for people to truly appreciate the legacy and your place in New Zealand sports history. Same with great teams. Right, coming up after 8 o'clock, we talk some baseball. Looking forward to this. You can text us here on 8833 0800 158 811 is the number. The catcher for the Tuatara, Rob Emery, out of the San Francisco Giants. Up next. Right, it is, I'm not even sure what the time is, to be honest, I'm in this different studio at the moment, I don't have a lot of um, stuff sitting here in front of me, two minutes after eight, we're just trying to get hold of um, Rob Emery, who is the catcher for the Auckland Tuatara baseball team, and we're just having a difficulty, these guys are all on American mobile numbers, so once we get hold of him, we will bring him into the programme. 
Um, remember the San Francisco Giants, and he's part of their um, what they call farm system. So he plays in the minor leagues for them, but he did play AAA back in 2022, which is just below major league level. He's what they call an offense first catcher. Comes with a highly rated reputation and has a reputation for being a leader and has been a key part of the success of the Tuatara. Now, the Tuatara in action, North Harbour Stadium, starting Friday night, 7 o'clock, double header on Saturday, 1 at 3, 1 at 7, and then the fourth game in the series, Sunday morning at 11. Now, baseball historically is played over nine inning. The Tuatara play over seven inning. And part of the reason they do that is because they're aware that it's a relatively new sport for New Zealanders and they don't want people sitting there for three, three and a half hours. They want people to sort of sit there for two hours. And so it's upset a few of the traditionalists in baseball, I guess. But what it does do, it puts a bit more pressure on the hitters throughout the entire seven inning to try and get runs, to try and create runs, to try and get inventive in terms of getting runners across home plate. Um, And Australia, I think, the Australian Baseball League have been looking to maybe adopt it across all teams. There has been a level of resistance. However, any double headers that are played in Australia as well will always be seven inning. Um, and I do encourage people to get along to North Harbour Stadium because it is presented beautifully. I think there's a real novelty with it. And it's cheap entry, and I just think it's something different. So I do encourage people to, yeah, if you've got, if you've got um, nothing better to do, maybe catch out the Auckland Tuatara. Just checking with my producer at the moment, still struggling to get through. Have we got him? 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 Well, now we break into the league commentary. Just waiting here. Not great radio, this, is it? Well, it's not bad radio. I'm just trying to be me. Stuff happens. You're all in work situations. Stuff happens. It's nobody's fault. It's just technical difficulties. Have we got Rob? Are we going to put Rob to ear? I think we've got him. I think we've got him. Silence. We've got him. Rob Emery, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good afternoon. My good man, you've come all the way over from the San Francisco Giants. You're playing in the Australian Baseball League. The first question I've got for you, how are you enjoying this baseball experience when you look back on your baseball career? Uh, It's been a dream come true. You know, I think uh, ever since I got to college and found out that you could go to Australia and play professionally, uh, it's been something I wanted to do. And it's been my first chance to get out to winter ball. So I've uh, really enjoyed just getting to compete and, and keep playing baseball at this time of year. And um, it's certainly been a pleasure getting to explore New Zealand and, and spending time on this side of the world. So it's been uh, it's been a real joy for me. And I, I think most of the guys on the team would say the same, especially the, uh, the American players. Yeah. And how have you found the whole team environment? It's not easy, is it, for the manager Steve Mintz and the likes of Darren Bragg having to bring a group of players together that have never played with each other in a really sort of sh- short period of time. And you know, and then put you out there with an expectation of winning. Yeah, well, I think they did a great job in, uh, you know, just finding guys that that were hungry and, uh, you know, resilient. And, you know, they've certainly had to be be resilient, uh, you know, over the the last three years, just trying to get us 
um, you know, back on the field. And, uh, you know, I think it shows in how, how the team's played and how we've come together and, and um, you know, the resiliency we've showed to travel and to, um, you know, adverse conditions, whether it's, you know, weather or, uh, you know, whatever's come our way, we've, we've been able to just uh, come together and push through. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're gaining a lot of momentum here, especially off that trip to Perth. And uh, I, I really like where the team's at right now, especially going into the second half of the season here. Yeah, which one of the three road trips have you enjoyed the most? The Brisbane Bandits, uh, Canberra against the Cavalry or uh, against the Perth Heat over the weekend? I mean, firstly, from a baseball point of view and, and also maybe just from a, a, a tourism point of view. Yeah, uh, from a baseball point of view, I think I think Perth was was the most fun just because of the challenge of, you know, flying over uh, 5,000 kilometres and then uh, playing that that Friday night game, uh, 7 p.m. Perth time, which was, you know, midnight for us. And we're all still kind of jet lagged. And, and we knew all those things were going to be a factor. And we, I think we showed a lot of toughness, especially our pitching staff throwing a complete game shutout there and, and set the tone for the series. So from a baseball standpoint, I think we played our best baseball this last, uh, this last weekend in Perth. And, you know, Brisbane was definitely a, a fun city to, to visit and be a tourist in. And we got to spend a little bit more time there, but uh, anytime you go one and three on a road trip, it's hard to say you liked, Mm. uh, you liked being in that city. You know what I mean? Now you're the catcher and that relationship with the pitcher is absolutely vital. And pitching is the key to baseball. Got good pitching. You're generally going to win probably more games than you're going to lose. But how difficult has it been forming that relationship understanding the picture in front of you, but also at the same time not having a lot of time to do the reconnaissance perhaps on the batters that are up in the box? Yeah, it, uh, it's been a bit of a challenge, but I think when you, um, you know, I think when the pitchers trust that you're, um, you know, there to help them as much as you can and, and you convey that, um, you know, then you get, you're able to get on the same page quickly, even with, you know, we've got Taiwanese pitchers, Japanese pitchers, uh, different pitchers from different orgs in America. So, um, as soon as you can get on the same page with them and just, you know, let them know that if they do what they do best, the odds are going to be in their favor. Mm. So I think, uh, early on, especially in the Brisbane trip, you know, uh, our staff, we might've tried to do a little bit too much. And, you know, we walked some guys, didn't throw as many strikes as we could. And, and that came back to bite us. And, and guys saw that and we were able to adjust. And, I, um, you know, we've we've really pitched well these last three series. And it's it's been a reason why mm-hmm. uh, we've been so successful. I think by your own high standards and just looking at statistics and, and reading that perhaps you didn't, maybe didn't have your, your best series against Brisbane. But since then, you've just continued to go from strength to strength. Is that a fair comment? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We were, we were myself and as a team, we were all kind of getting settled in and getting settled into the league and, uh, you know, everything, you know, it's, um, you know, a little bit of a layoff, no matter what season you were playing in, you know, no one had played games in, mm. in two months. So, um, you know, you just got to kind of roll with the punches and, and realize that, you know, whatever happens the first series, you're going to, 
be able to adjust. And uh, if you make good adjustments, you're going to be all right. Mm. If, from from a personal point of view, what were the shifts? What were the adjustments that you felt you needed to make? Was it just simply a case of acclimatizing? Was it just a simple case of time? Or did you have to make some adjustments technically? I mean, what were the coaching staff asking of you? Um, I, I would say with myself personally on, on the batting side, it was I, I had uh, got here and gotten a little uh, dinged up uh, on the injury side. And I had some weird adjustments. I felt like came from that just from trying to play while I wasn't at hundred percent health. So once I, I realized like, Hey, you know, I'm doing things because my body is, um, compensating a little bit. And I just need to trust that, that I can, uh, you know, do things normally. Uh, that that's kind of what allowed me to get back to, um, you know, being my, my normal self. And then, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're catching and, you know, there's a lot of things that go into, to managing the game. So I'll, I'll always put the emphasis on defense first. So, um, you know, there's that, you know, you, you want to make sure that you have all your bases covered on the defensive side and, uh, you know, learning how to get the signs mm-hmm. in and, and, making sure you're on, on the same page with the pitcher mm. as well. Mm. Uh, you hurt your hand in the series, the first home series here against the Sydney Blue Sox. How's that injury? It's good. It's uh, It's gotten a lot better. I felt like the last uh, the last two games of the Perth series, I was, I was back to swinging normally. And it's just one of those things that, you know, for hitters, uh, you're always just, if you have a hand injury or whatever, it's always going to be magnified because, that's what's holding the bat and the ball's impacting the bat. So you just got to learn to manage your workload and, and figure out what you can mm. do to get yourself mm. ready to, to hit when, uh, you know, you can't hit as much. So it's all, you know, it's always a evolving, um, you know, adjustment process or whatever, but I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, getting completely healthy over these next two days and, and getting out there for this, mm. uh, this next home series against Melbourne. There's a lot going on as a catcher, isn't there? You're looking to try and pick runners off at second base. You've got to be aware of everything that is going on. If there are runners on base, you've got the pitching count. You've got the, uh, you know, the communication with the hand signals um, with the pitcher. Um, is that? Yeah, I mean, explain explain your sort of uh, mindset around that and um, how you deal with the different equations that are potentially playing out in front of you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's, you know, you're always kind of thinking about seven things at once and you just kind of have to, um, make sure, you know, you're, you're given the right priority to the right thing. So, you know, you're calling a game, the, the biggest bang for your buck things are always going to be like, you know, how can I get my pitcher to repeat his delivery? And if he can repeat his delivery, he's probably going to be throwing strikes. Mm. So then if, you know, you got him throwing strikes, then it becomes, Mm. okay, how can I, um, you know, sequence his pitches the best way so that they, um, you know, look as similar as they can, you know, as close to home plate as they can to make a hard decision for the batter. And then, you know, the last thing that kind of isn't as big as much of a, a bang for your buck scenario, but it does come into play is, you know, who are who are the best hitters on the other team and and what do they not hit well? Because if we can go mm-hmm. to the well with those in those situations, you know, that, that, um, you know, brings the odds even, even more into our favor. And then beyond that, it's just kind of managing each situation. You know, you, we get a, a couple run lead and we're able to go right after guys, you know, that's always a great, um, 
a great, you know, freedom to have when you can go out and just say, Hey, until we get a runner on base, we're, we're, uh, we're going to be able to ride with the fastball and go right after guys and, and force the issue. And then, uh, you know, you get into other situations where, you know, you, you got runners on and you've got to try to, uh, you know, pitch into a ground ball or pitch for a strikeout or, you know, any type of, hmm. you know, uh, scenario like that, you know, you just got to, um, stick with uh, your gut and stick with what the highest probability uh, outcome is. And, you know, it usually works out in your favor. You saw that, you know, this last weekend with, uh, with Murata dancing around some, some big situations and getting ground balls or ha- getting strikeouts and strikeout situations, mm. um, you know, it helps to have, have pitchers that, that can execute that as well. As we've got the Melbourne Aces, as mentioned, um, second home series starting Friday night, 7 o'clock. When do you sort of sit down with management and do the analysis on their hitters? Is, 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 is that something that's done a day out, or how does that how does that function within a team, doing that reconnaissance? Yeah, so the, um, you know, going into it, you know, like when we're in our bullpens this week, we'll know, who their hitters are and um, we'll have kind of preliminary uh, info on, you know, okay, this guy's a lefty. He hits this part of the plate. Well, okay. So now we can, you know, maybe work on some sequences or, um, you know, locations that, that we might use, but then, you know, the majority of it happens, uh, you know, when you get the lineup before the game on Friday, I'll sit down with Kyle or, or Sunday, I'll sit down with Murata and say, okay, um, these are the guys that if you just do what you do best, you're going to have no problems. And then here might be the one guy that we're going to, you know, maybe pitch around. We're going to not let beat us, or we're just going to go and attack him with, with this pitch and see, you know, what mm. we can do there. Mm. But that's, you know, uh, you get the lineup and then, you know, um, you know, Friday, you, you're kind of testing the waters the first time through the order, seeing if, uh, you know, the info you had matches up with, with what you're seeing with your starter and with their hitters. And then if it works, you just you go keep going to the well. Mm. Before coming here, what were, your, um, what were your expectations on the standard of baseball and has it exceeded those standards or is it not as high a standard as you thought? Uh, I would say I really didn't have expectations for the league besides I, you know, I was really excited to get down here and play baseball where, you know, winning is, is the emphasis and you're, you're man, you're playing and managing every game. Like it's a a playoff game. Um, And I would say that, you know, that expectation has really uh, held up. It's, I think as a player and as a team, you play your best baseball when you need to win. Um, And when, you know, like we're playing a 40 game season here, as opposed to 140 game season in the minor leagues here, you know, mistakes and losses and wins, they all get magnified. So guys uh, know that they have to up their level of focus and, and perform, you know, um, inning to inning and game to game within a weekend. Um, so I would say that would, that was the biggest expectation that that's held up. And it's been a real pleasure to get out and play, um, you know, playoff like baseball every day. Mm. And the standard of pitching's impressed you? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, Australia kind of has a reputation of being, um, you know, more of a breaking ball, sinker, slider, off speed uh, type pitcher. 
And I think that was uh, something I wanted to work on when I came down here. And uh, I think that has definitely held up. I, I mean, uh, I'm going to mess his name up. Dan Oxman and, and uh, Warwick Sopold are kind of your, your prototypical former major league Australian pitchers. And, you know, they, they gave us fits. Um, Sopold with, with Perth and uh, Oxman with uh, Sydney. Um, but yeah, I definitely have, have been impressed with, with the ability to pitch and the field of pitch from, you know, the Japanese pitchers we've seen in the league and the Australian, uh, more local pitchers. You mentioned here the fact that it's only 40 games in the regular season. Every game is treated like a must win and it's treated like a playoff game. And that's the expectation from Steve Mintz and the coaching staff. The other big change here in New Zealand, of course, is just the seven inning, which does put an even greater pressure on teams having to try and manufacture runs and maybe just a little bit more urgency. Um, And we're doing it purely because we're trying to build the sport, trying to reach a wider audience. And Tuatara believe that a two-hour game is probably more conducive than a three-hour game. How have you found the seven-inning game? Yeah, uh, we play seven-inning doubleheaders in, in America, and it's always, uh, um, you know, you know that the that you have to come out from the start and be sharp because, you know, you, you do have less time. So um, I think it plays to our favor, especially at home, knowing that and, you know, the starters and all our position players knowing the, the urgency that, uh, you know, how short the game uh, can be. Um, you know, at the same time, I, the the one part, you know, you tend to dislike is, you know, always feeling like you're you're the better team. And if you have a long enough game, you're going to show that you're the better team. So, um, you know, there, those, there can be those games that get away from you and they get magnified in a loss to a opponent that you, you don't think you should lost, have lost to. But, um you know, like I said, you know, the, the impetus in a 40-game a season and coming down here to play winter ball and, um, you know, playing a win every day is to, to come out sharp and focus and play your best, you know, every time you're out there. Um, so if you're playing a seven-inning game, you know, that, that I think that elevates us even more so to do that. And how have you enjoyed the managerial style of Steve Mintz and his reputation and the way he does things? Oh, I love it, you know. Um He's a he's an old school manager, and he he has faith in his players, and he uh, he'll let you know right where you stand, and you know he's he's gonna always put um, you know the team above above everything else, and I think he's uh, you know he's shown that he has everyone's back, and that he's there to protect our best interests, whether it's with umpires or you know travel situations, or even if we're getting our bags checked in at the airport, you know he has our backs, and he's letting. Um, people know that uh, that we're going to be accommodated and all that. So, I, you know, I appreciate Mincy and all the Auckland um, front office for for making it happen for mm. us here. Okay, have you got a nickname? Uh, I think at the at the stadium they announced me as Rock and Rob Emery. Rock and um, Rob Emery. See, I'm I'm doing the commentary. I'm doing the commentary with Dale Budge, so we just need to know for television reasons. Rock and Rob Emery. We like that. And what and what about your parents? Yeah, they, they you- were they were they gave me that one uh, back home. Sometimes you know when I get the bat going, it's Bobby Barrels, but you can't force that one. That one comes, you know, with with the the hits. Um, so yeah. I like Rock and Rob Emery. That's yeah. funny. No, it's good. And what about your parents and family back home? Are they following you? Are they watching what you're doing over here? 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. The the time change is tough, but they're able to get on the the replay and uh, and watch that. Or you know, they they let me know in Perth, hey, you're on a closer time zone. We're getting up at five a.m. to watch you, so mm. it's good. I get messages at all you know funny hours of the day from from them, and it um, you know when the time zone matches up, we get to talk to them or talk about what's going on or all that. So yeah, yeah. they're definitely keeping tabs. All my my parents and my family up in North and South Dakota and uh, grandparents in, uh, Petaluma. They're all, they're all tapped in. I am going to talk to Dale Budge. I'm going to find out what your parents' names are. I'm going to give them a shout out over the weekend. All right. That'd be great. It's, uh, Amy and Michael. Amy and Chicago. Amy and Michael in Chicago. But what about the grandmother? There must, the, the grandmother, the grandmothers always love to hear their names. Yeah. Uh, grandma Alice and Nana Holly. Grandma Alice and Nana Holly, brilliant. We will make sure that they do get a big shout out. Hey, uh, just just quickly before we yeah, do let you go, just just a message to Tuatara fans getting along to this weekend's series against the Melbourne Aces. Yeah, hey, Tuatara fans, come on out this weekend. Support against the Melbourne Aces. Uh, you know, we're all making a push for that uh, uh, first place bid in the what conference are we in? We're in the south and north. Southeastern. No, northeastern, northeastern. My apology. Yeah, yeah. So we're making a push for the first place bid in northeastern conference, and uh, we'd love to see your support at North Harbour Stadium. We've got a great venue, the best stadium in the uh, uh, Australian Baseball League, and and we've got one of the most talented rosters you'll you'll find. So come out, grow the game of baseball, and uh, catch a two a tar game. Absolutely brilliant. Lovely to have you on the program, Rob. Looking forward to um, yeah, this Friday night and uh, been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Catch you there for the Tuatara. Rob Emery out of the San Francisco Giants. Quality, quality young man. Quality baseball player. Tuatara, quality team. Do it. They're also playing the, I think it's the, 29th, 30th and 31st of December so if you're in the Auckland, Greater Auckland region over that New Year period, get yourself along to a game before you perhaps go out and party a little bit 24 minutes after 8 you're listening to SENZ 29 minutes after 8 you're listening to SENZ, if you wish to phone the programme telephone number is 0800 150 811 we're getting to that time of the year where I guess it is a chance to reflect a little bit on the year that has been so look, we'll put a couple of just themes out there. We've sort of talked a little bit about Mahe Drysdale and um, him winning this medal. Uh, we spoke to Martin Cross, one of the great rowing commentators, um, earlier tonight. And where does he sit in New Zealand sports history amongst our greats? Have we had enough time since he retired to really reflect? How long do you need? Do you need 10 years for an athlete to be truly appreciated? Winning that Thomas Keller medal, the biggest prize in, or put out there by the International Rowing Federation. Uh, so just on that too, just those big sporty moments of the year. You've got the Halberg Awards, that discussion always comes up. You might have some thoughts on it. What have been the big news stories? I think the big news stories, the one that's probably um, polarised people has been the Ian Foster one here, hasn't it? Not sure there are too many people who still believe he should be all-black coach. Be a fascinating year next year. Are they in discussions with Scott Robertson? Has he been given the nod? Is he the next all-black coach? And if he's not, why not? Who is? We've had the Commonwealth Games this year. That's always provides some wonderful moments. 
Nico Porteous and Zoe Sadowski Sinnott winning Olympic Games gold medals at the Winter Olympics, first time in history, wonderful way to start the year. I think the New Zealand cricket team have been disappointing. But then Mitchell was superb in scoring hundreds in those three tests in England. Remarkable individual performance from him. I guess from a sense of nationalism, the Black Ferns, that semi-final against France and then that stunning final to beat England in front of a sellout at Eden Park. Shane Van Gisbergen winning 21 races in supercars. We know how big that sport is in Australia. And of course also winning Bathurst. Scotty McLaughlin making inroads. An IndyCar joining Scotty Dixon. You've got Ryan Fox doing well at golf. Lydia Ko doing well at golf. Lewis Clairbert winning a couple of gold medals in the pool at the Commonwealth Games. 400 individual medley. He was disappointed with a seventh place in Tokyo. He knows he's better than that. You can text us or phone us on any of those matters. Just an opportunity to reflect, really. 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. A FIFA Football World Cup. So, 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 so. And we're going to bring you some highlights of that and hopefully talk a little bit about the FIFA Football World Cup with the UK correspondents perhaps a little bit later in the night. But it's tough, isn't it? You look at it, you think... Argentina, Netherlands, worthy of a final. England, France, worthy of a final. Brazil, Croatia. Croatia made the final of the last World Cup, worthy of a final. And then you've got Portugal versus Morocco. Every World Cup has that team that goes on that run, that captures the spirit, that captures the imagination. And it's great to have a North African team. Do it. Can they get over Portugal? Well, based on that display this morning against Switzerland, no. But which one of those quarterfinals is going to provide the upset? I mean, I still think England go in as the underdogs against France. France are defending champions. I still think they're the team to beat. My question over Brazil is can they bring the performance is that we've seen consistently to the table? Very good victory over Korea and I hate to say it well I, do, I don't hate to say it but Portugal look a better side without Cristiano Ronaldo don't they and there he is throwing the toys that sort of brat pack mentality he's got to be a little bit careful Cristiano Ronaldo because he's gone from having the largest social media following in the world and make the All Blacks based on that too by the way if, if, boy imagine that he put his hand up to be an All Black would pick him because of his social media um, I've just been a bit facetious but he threw the toys against Manchester United. He's thrown the toys now for Portugal. He doesn't want to damage his brand this late in his career. He should be should just be the Stephen Adams. Remember Stephen Adams in the NBA playoffs this year was actually dropped for, I think it was the second round of the playoffs. The team they were playing didn't really suit his style of play. He just sat there and took it on the chin and said, nah, one team, one dream. Endeared himself. Jordan Henderson does it with Liverpool at times. Portugal could win this World Cup. 
Cristiano Ronaldo can come along for the ride and be a part of it. Or he can be the black sheep. At the moment, he's deciding to be the black sheep. 0800 150 811 is the number. You're listening to SENZ. Text us here on 8833. 21 minutes away from 9 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. Coming up after 9, rugby journalist out of South Africa, Dylan Jack, will join us on the programme. Get his thoughts on the South African perspective of Wales and England making coaching changes seven or eight months out from the Rugby World Cup. Also just keen to get his thoughts on how far out from the World Cup do you start preparing because I don't agree with this four-year turnover that New Zealand seems to want to adopt. I think it just gives coaches an excuse when they lose. And I think it's very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous to be putting all your eggs in one basket rolling the dice particularly when the All Blacks and you've got such a proud history and tradition and it's not okay to lose you would have heard me going about that over the last 12 months so we'll get that perspective there from Dylan Jack out of South Africa after 9 Ben Hello mate I was just going to say that you just have to look at South Africa before the last World Cup and Arasi Erasmus got appointed pretty late I don't think it was this close but it was it was probably just over a year. Well, they got beaten fifty-seven nil, didn't they, by the exactly. All Blacks in September of two thousand and seventeen? That was under Alistair Kutsia. And then they made the changes. Um, everybody had written them off. There was a lot of talk about where South African rugby was at, and they got it right. I mean, where was Australian rugby back in two thousand and fifteen? And they ended up reaching the final against us, and actually didn't play too badly. You go back to 2019 and what we had a final between um, England and South Africa. Exactly. Just need to time that run. And maybe that's what the All Blacks are hoping will happen, but no guarantee. Mm. Okay. Now, look, we've got some football highlights there, haven't we, Ben? So, oh, you've got Mark there? Okay. Sorry, I don't see what access we've got to. Sorry, I'm in a different studio. Mark, good evening. Welcome. Hello, Mark. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. As an All Black supporter, I think it's way past time that uh, the guy who's coaching the Crusaders was made All Black coach. So, straight question. What can we as All Black supporters do to put pressure on the New Zealand Rugby Union to pay attention to what the public wants rather than them operating out of their misconceived loser ideas to pay attention to what the public wants and make the better move to get a more effective All Black coach in there? Not turn up to the matches, not buy merchandise, oh, what? Oh, look, I think I, I think they've got the message. I think it's been pretty brutal this year. I think um, a lot of media have gone after them. I think, um, you know, I'm not sure there's the talkback opportunities um, that there once were purely around sport that perhaps existed in the days of Laurie Maines and John Hart. But I think the New Zealand, I think they've got the message pretty quickly that New Zealand as a whole are not happy. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, they know best, don't they? I mean, they still believe that New Zealand rugby can operate just on the All Blacks and, you know, they've ignored Super Rugby, My 10 Cup and Club Rugby. Um, what can you do? Well, again, it just comes back to it. They'll be aware that people tuning up to games uh, is in decline, that television ratings are in decline, plane numbers are in decline, and if, if, if they can't read the signs, they're complete and utter morons. And unfortunately, it's starting to look more and more like that, that in my opinion, that, yeah, they are morons. They are morons, full stop. Mm. 
but yeah, I mean, you know, we've got to do more to keep our top coaches here. Uh, stop worrying about oh, stop worrying about just trying to keep money, trying to spend money to keep our top players here because they threaten to leave if we don't pay them more. I'll keep saying this, and I've said it all year. If the romance of the All Black jersey has gone, and the only thing that keeps you here in New Zealand and in the All Black jersey is money, then as far as I'm concerned, go because that's not the ethos of the All Blacks. It was 120 years of or 100 500 whatever years of amateur rugby that built that All Black brand. And um, I'd rather just see us spend the money on keeping our top coaches here, building the Mitre 10 Cup, building Super Rugby and making it the highest, making those jobs the highest coaching positions in the world outside of coaching the All Blacks. I couldn't agree more. Mm. All right, Mark, lovely to have you on the programme. Do appreciate appreciate it. Okay, 16 minutes away from nine. I was going to bring you some football highlights. How much um, time have we got here, Ben? Uh, we have probably literally just enough time to squeeze both games in. Okay. Um, do we need to take a break or? I, I, must, think, so. I think so. You think so? Because I I'm, normally have all the stuff in front of me and I don't need to ask those questions. But as I said, I'm working in a studio and I don't have any of that information in front of me. It's almost like a studio that's set up sort of for podcasts. It's all a little bit strange. It's all a little bit weird. I, I feel like I'm doing what they call an OB, an outside broadcast from somewhere. Right, so we will take a break and we'll come back with some football highlights. You're listening to SCNZ. Bring you some football highlights from earlier this morning, courtesy of our commentary team here on SEN in Australia, SENZ here in New Zealand. First up, it was Spain taking on Morocco. So a free kick here for Morocco. Just outside the box, it'll be Hakimi who takes it and he wasn't far away over the crossbar. Plays it out with the right foot. Oh, and it's been brought back in here for Spain. They've laid it off and Spain hit the crossbar. Second shot blocked by Amrabat. The flag has gone up. It did look like an offside at the time. Grant Torres in midfield is dispossessed and Morocco have the ball through Masraoui who unleashes a strike. Simon couldn't hold the first save and there was a follow-up from Ennesri. Simon was under pressure, the goalkeeper, but he retrieved his own fumble. Tries to cut the header back in. Saiz keeps it alive. Hakimi works in across again to the back post and headed up and away. Bufal, left side of the box, cuts around. Left foot shot towards the back post. Header is off target from Nayef Aguerd. Asensio will flick it back to Olmo, who drives it to the face of goal, and it's punched away by Bono. Ended up being a shot on target from Danny Olmo on an angle, but he did well. Got it around the two-man wall. Darts to make a lateral run. Into the feet now of Morata at the front post. Morata cuts it across the face of goal. There was no one there for Spain. It would have been impossible for Morata to score. He was pretty much on the byline. Here goes Zayesh down the right. Overlapping run from Hakimi. Gets across in back post. Knocked down towards Shedira, who tries to strike on the turn. But he was being squeezed together by the centre-backs. Cross comes in from the free kick to the back post for Spain. And the header has been blasted over by Alvaro Morata. And that is the end of the 90 minutes. And we are going again to extra time. Morocco have found a bit of space on the right now. Unahi is moving through the lines, gets it into Shadira. Wally Shadira! It's been saved by Unai Simon. That was the chance for Morocco. Sarabia left foot across from the right sideline. There's a touch! Oh, and it's almost an own goal. It looked like it was going in, but it was in the end. El Yamik with a good bit of defensive work. Back in board again to Busquets. Out to the far flank. Cross comes in. Back post and hit across the face of goal by Pablo Sarabia, who was unmarked at the back stick. Hit it first time. 
time on the volley off the instep and it whips across the face of goal and that is the end of extra time and we are going to a penalty shootout we go to pens abdul hamid sabidi is first up for morocco steps up and rolls it down the right side yasin bono is the goalkeeper for morocco sarabia for spain and he's hit the posts he's hit the base of the right posts and it's ricocheted out and spain miss badr bandun strolls up and it's saved by unai simon in all of his years all of his experience walks up to the spot and it's saved again by bono far too relaxed that penalty from sergio busquets so this will be the moment for morocco and it's on ashraf hakimi morocco's star player the man who was born in spain about to send the nation of his birth home ashraf hakimi created by real madrid and he blasts it down the middle and ashraf hakimi has set morocco to where they have never been before morocco are into the quarterfinals of the world cup and african team are in the final eight of the qatar world cup 2022 and morocco will end up playing the winner of our next game it was portugal taking on switzerland here go Portugal on the edge of the box. Bernardo Silva cutting it back to the back stick and it was swept out of there by Switzerland. The stabbing clearance outside the box. Thrown in. Shot comes oh, in. It's a, goal. Oh, it's a lovely goal. What an angle. It's Gonzalo Ramos. The youngster. The man who came in to replace Cristiano Ronaldo has just done his job <laughs> out of nothing. It was a throw in. It was a deft touch from Felix. And then in a trice, Gonzalo Ramos swiveled and blasted it to the near post with his left foot and beat Jan Sommer all ends up. And Bernardo Silva plays it into the underlapping run of Guerrero. The edge of the box, Felix. Half volley shot, bounces up into the chest of Jan Sommer. Jonas Shakiri steps up and strikes, and he's not far away. Got to the bottom corner. Looks like Diogo Costa would have had that covered. Ramos, Pepe, Diaz, and Carvalho. Cross comes in. Pepe goes up. Pepe! Pepe. (laughs) What a story. The 39-year-old Pepe has scored for Portugal. His second goal in his World Cup career, and the Second goal for Portugal on the Knights. What a ball. What a ball. Ramos. What a save. That is unbelievable. How did he save that? How? Off to the right flank for Diogo Dalo. Here's Ramos again. Oh, yeah. Gonzalo Ramos at the front post. Oh, on the end story. of the short low cross from Diego Dallo finger guns for Gonzalo he has a brace Portugal attack again down the left side Portugal could be in for a foul oh, there it is it's Rafael Guerrero the left back who went on a careering run down the left flank all in open space and it's a fourth goal for Portugal corner comes in for Switzerland back post they and they bundled one in can you believe it Manuel Akanji has bundled it in at the back posts and Switzerland have added one to their tally. Go Portugal are in oh, again. Ramos for the hat trick. He has He's done got it. it. He has done it. Gonzalo Ramos has put his what name up in lights. His name is Gonzalo Ramos. He is 21 and he has a hat trick in the round of 16 match at a World Cup. Look at him, he can't suppress his grin. <laughs> He's trying to suppress his grin, but the corner of his mouth is curling up. Cristiano up. Ronaldo. His, his, his ego rises, you know? Is, is he just trying to shut down? Yeah, I'm still the man. Look at the reaction I'm getting. <laughs> you know what I mean? They still love me. They still love me. Looking at a cross, and, and now again, they're moving. Here's there Rafael he Liao. Cutting on his right foot. No. Liao takes the shot. Oh, what a shot it is. Oh, an excellent goal from Rafael Liao. Cutting in on his right foot from the top of the box near the left corner of the area from left to right across the face and nestles into the back of the net. 
And it is full-time from the Lusail Iconic Stadium. Portugal have put six goals past Switzerland en route to the quarterfinals. It's been Ronaldo's team for over a decade, but today on this day, it was Gonzalo Ramos's team. He scores a hat-trick, the first hat-trick of the 2022 World Cup, the 21-year-old striker who came into the 11 to replace Cristiano Ronaldo, and he did it with aplomb. Portugal, if you had any doubts on them in the lead-up, well, they might have cast those doubts aside with a 6-1 victory over Switzerland. Yeah, so Portugal will end up taking on Morocco, Argentina, the Netherlands, Brazil take on Croatia, England take on France. Remarkable quarterfinals. Craig texting in, what up? Murray Mixed did agree this week, Super Rugby and NPC is critical. Great show, Craig and Todong. Appreciate your texting in. Keep them coming. Double eight, double three. After nine o'clock, we'll head to South Africa. We'll catch up with sports writer Dylan Jack, get his thoughts on the South African perspective of Northern Hemisphere and number of coaching changes and how they rate their own year and the countdown to next year's World Cup as defending champions. Just after nine o'clock, you're listening to SENZ nationwide across New Zealand. Hope you're enjoying the programme. Feel free to jump on the phones. Telephone us on 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. Been looking forward to this. My next guest on the programme is, the, is, the, is an author at the South African Rugby Magazine. His name is Dylan Jack. We welcome him. Dylan, good evening. Good morning. Welcome. How are you? I'm great in yourself. Thanks for having me on. No, no problem at all. Um, look, I've, there's been a lot happening, I guess, um, over the last 48 hours, not so much in South Africa or New Zealand, but certainly in Wales. Coaching change there. Um, Warren Gatlin coming back in. Equally, we have seen a coaching change for England. What's been the South African take on this? Uh, I mean, does this make Wales and England stronger as we head into next year's Rugby World Cup? Yeah, it's a very interesting thing to see both teams sort of change their coaches um, less than a year out from the World Cup. You know, I mean, the Springboks did something similar when they um, uh, sacked uh, Alistair Kutsia and then they brought in Rassi Rasmus and Jacques Ninoba back from uh, Munster in 2018. But that obviously was two years out from the World Cup, which gave them a bit more time to implement the systems that they needed to sort of implement um, for the World Cup, uh, including Ninova's quite detailed defensive system. Um, so it's it's quite interesting. I think so, the spring, uh, the general feel around Eddie Jones in particular is that England have probably made a bit of a mistake by getting rid of him. Um, Eddie Jones is obviously very highly rated in South Africa due to what he did um, with the Springboks in 2007. He was an assistant coach. He was brought in as a consultant mm. um, to Jake White for that 2007 tournament, and he really did help create some new things with the Springbok attack in particular. Um, so he's very highly rated in South Africa. So there's a feeling that maybe England have taken the wrong um, option here and getting rid of Eddie Jones a y- less than a year out from the World Cup. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, yeah, how much can you read into um, a, a team's form, uh, say, seven or eight months yeah. from, out from a Rugby World Cup? I, I, I get frustrated here in New Zealand that we sort of go on this four-year cycle and it's always building towards the next World Cup. It's like, just win the next test. And the point, the point I guess, for South yeah. Africa, I mean, you guys were beaten here in New Zealand 57-0 in 2017. Two years later, you win the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, do teams yeah. overthink it? Yeah, maybe. Um, and I think the thing with England is that uh, maybe Eddie Jones possibly could have bought himself a bit more time by 
um, turning some of those losses into wins. Obviously, they had their, I think they had the worst run of results this year since 2008. So, I mean, maybe he could have brought himself a bit more time in terms of his um, experimenting and trying to find out what systems would have worked for the World Cup if he had just, if the team had just turned a couple of those um, losses um, into wins and um, maybe had performed better in the Six Nations in particular. And I think that was maybe where the frustration um, lies with England. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, just heading towards the next world. I mean, looking okay, looking back on the year two thousand and twenty-two, what's the general consensus around the Springbok? How, how do you, how do you, and how do the rugby public feel that the team fared this year? Yeah, I think it's been a really interesting year, and in that the team has experimented. They haven't always got the results that they've um, wanted, particularly in the um, rugby championship. There were. There was the home loss at Ellis Park to New Zealand, and I think that hurt a bit because that possibly was the game where the Springboks um, surrendered the rugby championship because going from beating New Zealand in the final 10 minutes to giving New Zealand a bonus point win at Ellis Park um, in Johannesburg, it's 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 a, a totally different shift. You, you've basically given them the title over there. So, but other but apart from that, you look at how they've been able to grow um, the squad in different areas. They've been able to um, implement Damien Willemse as a test rugby fly half. They've been able to um, bring in a couple of young wingers. We've seen Kanan Moody do really, really well. We've seen Kirtley Orenser, seven tries and seven test matches, absolutely outstanding. So there is, um, well, there is a little bit of a frustration about the results. Ultimately, I mean, they got the, the Springboks got the first win against Australia in Australia since 2013, beat England at Twickenham for the first time since 2014. And there's also been a growth in the attacking systems as well. The Springboks look a bit more enterprising on attack than they did uh, last year. So there's an acceptance that some of those results sort of had to be sacrificed to grow the different areas of the squad. Mm. So is South Africa stronger or weaker for not being part of Super Rugby now? Um, I think it, it's a tricky question, that one. Um, I think that ultimately they, they would be stronger. I think when you look at the players that are coming through the, the system right now, the fact that they're more aligned with the Northern Hemisphere, which probably suits um, the club teams a bit more in terms of travel. Um, so I, I think that they're a little bit better off for um, leaving Super Rugby and being able to join up with the um, URC. Um, we're seeing now they're going to make their Champions and Challenge Cup debut, which is really, really exciting. It's something that um, the country is excited for, getting our teams into such a big competition, such a historic competition. It's, it's absolutely massive, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Um, New Zealand, is it? are we still seen as a threat next year to the Rugby World Cup? Do we still put fear into South Africa? Because, I mean, at the moment, I'm not sure that New Zealanders think this all-black team's particularly great or particularly flash. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there is still a concern of what New Zealand can do to you when they are on their game. Obviously, they've got incredible players that if you allow them the space, if you allow them the time, the guys like the uh, Barrett brothers, you know, if you get, if you allow these players um, the time and the space to just operate with the ball, they're going to slaughter you. And we saw that at um, Ellis Park this year, that if you give the All Blacks any sort of dominance, um, any sort of territorial gain, they they have the players to be able to carve you to shreds. Um, so they are still seen, while they're not sort of as feared um, as the sort of 2015 team used to be, 
um, they, they're still seen as a bit of a threat for the World Cup if you're not on your game, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, well, I'll ask you this because um, I think New Zealand, South Africa, we're both on the harder side of the draw. We've also got Ireland and France, yeah. so I think the four best sides in the world yeah. at the moment, and two of them are going to go after the quarterfinals. Um, so who does South Africa see as their biggest challenge? Um, probably at, at this stage, they probably see France as their biggest challenge. Um, obviously, the French have just have gone through the year unbeaten. They haven't had the struggles that um, New Zealand have had this year with under Ian Foster. Um, and they obviously also beat the, the Springboks and, um, in the game this year um, on the end of year tour. So I think that France are seen as the biggest threat um, with the way that they've just been growing over the past couple of years. And the fact that they do seem to be on an upward traje- trajectory, um, but Ireland are also equally seen as a threat. I mean, they—I think they outplayed the Springboks in Dublin in that game. Um, and the Springboks, I mean, two, even though it was a two-point game, Ireland probably could have won that game a bit easier, mm. a bit better. So um, I think that Ireland are seen as a big threat, obviously, in the pool. Winning that pool game is going to be absolutely crucial, and then. You're probably also looking at France as a massive threat in the in a potential um, quarterfinal at home. It's it's going to be yeah. a, a massive game if that's the game that the Springboks yeah. have in the quarterfinal. Yeah, one thing that they have to deal with, and it's something that I think Steve Hansen pointed out in 2019 with Ireland and possibly France, and that's dealing with the expectation of being favourites. It's something that New Zealand's always had to yes. do. It's probably something South Africa's always had to deal with. And so yeah. it's fascinating, isn't it, because it is so much greater than the sum of its parts at a World Cup. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, France have never really had to, maybe, possibly had never really had to deal with that, or this French team never really had to deal with that sort of pressure of expectation, and that's going to be all on them next year. It's going to be really interesting to see how they deal with that mm-hmm. from sort of a psychological point of view, that going into a World Cup, they're definitely going into the world, this World Cup as the favourites, that's for sure. When you World Cup host, you work, you've gone through an unbeaten season, um, you've won the Six Nations, you've done it all, and now you're going into World Cup as host. It, it, you're definitely going to be tie for favourite, so that's really going to be the interesting thing to watch next year. You're listening to SENZ, Dylan Jack, author at South African Rugby Magazine, is my guest on the programme. You mentioned um, the building of depth and building of players and key positions in South Africa. Who are the two players that you can at least afford to have injured and not make the World Cup next year? Um, well, if I had to pick out two from this current squad, you're probably looking at firstly the captain, Sia Kulisi. Obviously, he's been tremendous this year, absolutely tremendous this year, not only as a captain um, and a leader both on and off the field, but also just as a, as a player. He's just been in, in incredible form this year. Um, and then you're probably looking at either between Ian Etzebeth at lock, who's also, I mean, 100 test cap, over 100 test cap lock, um, also in absolutely tremendous form, um, one of the best number fours in the world at this point. Probably unlucky to miss out on a um, Player of the Year nomination from mm. World Rugby. Um, and then you were probably also looking at a guy like perhaps an unsung hero, um, like uh, or possibly two unsung heroes like uh, Franz Mahab and Lukanyo Am. Franz Mahab, one of the best titans in the world, an incredible defender. Um, obviously a key cog in that Springbok scrum, someone who just knits it all together. And then Lukanya M, who um, just the creative hub of the Springboks. Um, he's been out injured for half the year, and Jesse Creel has done a very good job in filling out, filling in for him. 
Um, but Lukanya M is is one of the best number 13s in the world, if not the best number 13 mm. before his injury. Um, so you're probably looking at those. I know I've listed four players, but um, you're probably looking at mm. those four as the as the players that the Springboks could least afford to lose. That they probably, when you're looking at the alternatives there, they're probably not as strong as um, the players in those mm. positions. Uh, it, it, we were absolutely amazed um, over here that Artie Sevilla didn't get nominated for Player of the Year. The All Blacks have been yeah. terrible, but that guy was brilliant even when the All Blacks were terrible. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 mm. the South Africans would take him in a heartbeat, wouldn't they? They'd put him in their starting lineup if you, if you, if you could have him, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Artie, just absolutely next level. A guy just absolutely dogged in everything that he does he's just he never accepts second best and any whether it's carrying whether it's defending going in and poaching with poaching at the breakdown it's just he's an absolutely incredible player um whether he comes in at number eight or number seven or number six wherever he plays he just mm. is absolutely incredible so i think yeah i mean he's another player that really really unlucky to miss out on a well, no, it's, um, it's, look, look, let's, the year nomination just, yeah, let's, yeah. Just, let's, be honest, let's be honest Dylan I mean it's just the northern hemisphere just putting the boot into the south isn't it I mean they always put their players up on a pedestal a they bit. always put their players up on a pedestal don't they I mean if you were to choose the greatest ever 15 across the world it'd be all South African and New Zealand players wouldn't it Dylan of course it would <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Not I wouldn't go that far. But yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely insane that um, uh, Eben Etzebeth and Ardi Severe both. It's it's so so strange that both of them missed out on nominations after the years that they've had. I mean, and and the players that were nominated, you probably look at them and say, well, are they? Did they have as good a season as these two players? And it's probably not. Mm. You could say. Um, mm. And you look at a uh, Josh van der Fleer, I think deserved to win the World Player of the Year. But um, the other players that were nominated, France. I mean, France. You could say that France played Japan um, mid-year, and it was that uh, as tough a test as some of the Southern Hemisphere teams had um, in their games. Um, South Africa hosting uh, uh, Wales, and um, you know, it's it's just uh, you're looking at those games, and you're saying, did they have as tough fixtures as the um, Springboks in New Zealand had? And I think. The, it's quite, you know, um, with Audi and Eben missing out, it's, it's a quite unfortunate thing for mm. the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. In regard to the uh, black players, if I can use that terminology, in South Africa, are they well and truly now integrated into the game or are there still barriers? I mean, I would have thought players like Khaleesi and stuff would have, you know, demonstrated that, hey, <laughs> you know, we, we need to tap yeah. in, we need to tap into uh, the African DNA here. Well, I mean, there's a very inclusive, there's inc- increasingly and increasingly there's uh, inclusive culture in the Springboks now. We, we've obviously seen that um, both with the supporters that come to the stadium, we've seen it behind the scenes. There's a, there's a very much a inclusive culture um, at the Springboks and that's sort of removed. And that's what Rossi and Jacques have done so well in their tenure is they've sort of, these players select themselves. It's not selecting a player to check a box. These players really select themselves and it's mm. the same that's filtered down to our um unions as well where we've seen more black players and more colored players being selected than ever before so and these players fully deserve their selection it's not being selected to tick a box and they've also sort of transformed their culture the sharks the bulls the stormers we've seen the stormers um if you've watched some of their videos that they've released from their behind the scenes footage they've fully sort of 
designed and got an inclusive culture in their team that allows the players to express themselves. It's not just selecting a player for the sake of it. Um, and perhaps there is still a barrier in the country in terms of access to resources when you talk about yeah. that. Um, there's still very much a barrier in terms of that between um, black players and white players. Um, and that's still something that we have to overcome. But in terms of the teams, there's definitely a better mm. inclusive culture in all of our teams at the moment, which is mm. really, really good to see. One of the criticisms that I have with New Zealand rugby is it's all become too top-heavy. It's all about the All Blacks, and club rugby's in a bit of yeah. trouble here. We've seen the MPC really, really struggling, and now with South Africa not part of Super Rugby and um, players being rested and rotated and you now top players not always available, um, you know, the, the, the game is struggling. I mean, how healthy, how healthy is the domestic game in South Africa? How healthy is the Curry Cup? Uh, that's a very good question because, um, and the, interestingly, in the Curry Cup, we saw two of our smaller unions, um, the Griquas and um, the Pumas, two two unions who aren't used to um, any sort of domestic, big domestic success, contesting the Curry Cup final, which is sort of a sign of um, sort of where the Curry Cup is at the moment because of the um, uh, because of our teams going into the URC and now into the Champions Cup. Um, the emphasis on this, they're no longer fielding what they would call their strongest teams in the Curry mm. Cup anymore, which has allowed these smaller unions to mm. sort of get success. Um, so that's perhaps both a positive and a negative. It's obviously devalued the Curry Cup a little bit, you could say, because our, um, for such a historic competition, one of the oldest club competitions in the world, um, in world rugby, um, you don't have the best players playing in there anymore. You have players that are coming through from um, the under-21s or mm. um, the under-19s and perhaps even Varsity Cup coming through. You have sort of those sort of players coming through with perhaps a, some few experienced players that aren't getting regular game time in the URC and sort of a mix and match in that in terms of um, the bigger unions. Um, so that sort, of, that sort of devalued the Curry Cup in a way. Yeah, not happening here. Crowd numbers are down, player numbers are down, television ratings are down, and now the All Blacks are saying it's okay to lose as long as we win the Rugby World Cup. So we've reduced rugby to once every four years. I'm not sure it's a healthy place to be. To be perfectly, yeah. uh, to to be perfectly honest. Um, so how Rassi Rasmus seems to be a bit of a controversial figure. Um, how is he received in South Africa? Well, I think it's it's very much split at the moment um, between because you have his staunch defenders, you have people who absolutely love him and will back him no matter what, and then you have you do have a bit of a growing contingent that are starting to get a little bit frustrated with um, his antics on um, social media, what he's sort of the videos that he's been releasing on Twitter and his criticism of referees. Um, so there's a bit of a divide there at the moment between. Um, the support, the Springbok supporters, there's, there's one portion that'll definitely back him no matter what and see Rassi as the coach that guided us to the 2019 World Cup and um, they'll be behind him. And But there's another portion that's sort of emerging that's sort of wanting Rassi to focus more on the rugby now than, and sort of keep the main thing the main thing, as he would say, um, instead of going on Twitter and criticising referees, you know. 
Okay, we've had a huge discussion here. Not too many New Zealanders believe in Ian Foster. I mean, other countries are allowed to experiment in the name of trying to win the Rugby World Cup, not the All Blacks. We expect to win every test, and there seems to be a little bit of a shift. No one wants Ian Foster. No one believes he's any good. We lost a series to Ireland this year. We lost to Argentina at home. Um, We probably should have lost a test to the Wallabies. I mean, is South African surprised that we've retained him? I mean, do South Africans... Um, rugby fans believe what a lot of New Zealanders believe that why haven't we sacked this guy? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there's there's a, there was a big surprise that um, New Zealand rugby, particularly when he was under pressure, half sort of in those first couple of weeks in um, the rugby championship, and also after that loss to Argentina, there was a big question of well, why have New Zealand continued to back this guy if the results aren't coming? Mm. It's quite clear he's not getting the best out of the players at the mo- at the moment, and um, the results aren't there. So why is he continually getting backed? And it was really, really surprising to see New Zealand rugby sort of stick with him when all of this was going on, when he was really, really under pressure. He was sort of a subject of ridicule almost um, in South Africa, I would say. Oh, yeah, I tell you what, if he doesn't win the Rugby World Cup, and I'm not sure he will, I think we'll be struggling to get out of the quarterfinals. We'll go down as the worst all-black coach in history, and it could have been, it could have it could yeah. have changed. We could have done differently, but no, no. No, no, the Old Boys Network, well and truly at work here in New Zealand. Uh, look, Dylan, lovely to have you on the programme, greatly appreciated, and um, look, have a great Christmas, and... Um, I really do hope South Africa are not as good as they look next year. <laughs> Thank you so much. Eh? Yeah, hopefully we keep on going on the up and up <laughs> next year. Oh, no, nothing, <laughs> no, 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 nothing but respect, mate. Nothing but respect in all, ser- in all seriousness. Sure, hey, Dylan, lovely. Thank you. Dylan Jack, the, uh, the author of the South African Rugby Magazine, joining us here on the programme. Some interesting thoughts, eh? Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Boy, we lose to France in the opening game of that Rugby World Cup next year, and then we're more than likely to play either Ireland or South Africa, the, the winner of that pool. South Africa or Ireland? I'm going to go with South Africa. Oh, I don't know. Ireland going to beat South Africa? South Africa going to beat Ireland? It's just a really weird draw. Why did they make the draw three or four years out from the World Cup? How can you have the four best sides in the world all sitting on one side? I mean, Australia could end up making the semi-finals finals quite easily. And yet, two out of the four best teams go out in the quarterfinals. But I guess to win the World Cup, you've got to beat the best teams anyway, don't you? I've always had this philosophy. doesn't matter if you make the World Cup final and lose. You may as well have gone out in pool play. You may as well have gone out in the quarterfinals. You may as well have gone out in the semi-finals unless you're an absolute minnow. Because the reality is you ain't bringing the trophy home. And let's be honest, we're not a country that accepts second. Not when it comes to men's rugby, not when it comes to the All Blacks. Second is failure in this country. Second might be a victory for countries like Argentina, might be a victory for countries like Wales. It ain't a victory for us. Might want to comment. 0800 150 811 is the number. I'm always reluctant to talk rugby this time of the year, but keen to get a South African perspective on the year that has gone. I think they go in as favourites, and I think they can go back-to-back like the All Blacks did in 2011 and 2015. They win this World Cup. They've won four. We've won three. That's going to hurt, isn't it? It's going to hurt a lot. And what if we do lose this Rugby World Cup and we do go out in the quarterfinals or the semifinals? 
surely Mark Robertson should resign. Surely the board of New Zealand Rugby should resign. Because most people, if you're betting, don't believe we're going to win this Rugby World Cup. However, a lot of people, I think, felt we'd have a better chance if Scott Robertson was coaching. So we know doom and gloom is coming. And we can prevent it, but we've done nothing to prevent it. Let's just have the car crash and deal with the consequences afterwards, and then we'll build a new car and see if we get it right in four years' time. Hi, Brent. Mark. How are you? The one, the one, good, mate. The one point you're forgetting. Yep. Who's the only side that beat South Africa at that last World Cup? Yeah, correct. I mean, we did. Yeah, we did beat them. Absolutely, we beat them in that. Uh, was it court, uh, no pool play? Wasn't it? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Look, I know that. I know that. But um. England were pathetic in that final, brother. Yeah, well, they played their final against us, didn't they? And then they believed their own hype, which is so English rugby, which is the reason why I hate them so much. Their arrogance, Mark, to think that they were going to smash the South African forwards. You don't beat South Africa up front. You beat them out wide, brother. Mm-hmm. Are, uh, you, are you confident we can win the World Cup, Brent? No, I'm not confident, Mark. <laughs> No, it's, 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 a, it's a shame, isn't it? And then we wait another four years to have another crack. And it's, you know, it's not like the writing wasn't on the wall. It's not like we haven't had plenty of warning, yet we still, I don't know, we still just seem to be gambling. Yes. Mm. Mark, as usual, just like 81, politics, brother. Oh, right. it's, it's always political. But we just lack leadership at the top, don't we? Mark Robertson, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but he's, he's not the right guy to be hitting New Zealand rugby, not ruthless enough. I mean, I actually admire what Wales have done. I actually admire what England have done with their changing of the coaches. Mark, I agree with you totally what you say about the club rugby and everything. It's all taken a nosedive. It's top heavy. Uh, oh, a game can't survive. We'll end up like Wales. No. Remember Wales? I think the last great test against the All Blacks was 1981, was it, when Graham Murray scores in the corner there and... Um, and then after that, Wales just became this very, very ordinary side and this great history and this great reputation. And it's taken them a long, long time to sort of climb their way back into the light. And I never thought I'd say it about New Zealand rugby, but I think you've only got to look at last year. You've only got to look at this year. And yes, we can blame Ian Foster for it, but then you go below and go, yeah, but where's the plane depth? And where are our big, tall locks? And... You know, where are the yes. skills that we once had and how regularly are our best players playing each other and it just doesn't seem to be happening. And where is that grounding that used to come through club rugby? And now, you know, and suddenly we've reduced schoolboy rugby to the stepping stone. It's it just, it, it doesn't work. It seems all us about face, excuse my language, Marco. No, it does, yeah. Um, now, you played a lot of club rugby, didn't you, Brent, back in your day? 30 years, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who'd you play for? Um, Porra, Oriental Rongatai, Taupo, Hawke's Bay. Oh, well done. All over the show, brother. No, good on you. I'm down in Wellington what? tomorrow for Guns N' Roses, my good man. Oh, you're looking forward to that, aren't you? Oh, I am, I am, I am. Yeah, it's my band. Yep, it's a photo album of my last 30 years. Big guy, looking forward to it indeed. Yep. Okay, Marcus. Hey, take, days, yeah, take your time, Brett. Thank you. Lovely to have you on Thank the program. You. Always appreciate it. Don't be a stranger. Telephone lines are open. 0800 150 You're listening to SENZ. In South Africa, it got down to 14 men each. They only lost by two points in France. And France were playing their top team. So 
know, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Well, it'll be the closest Rugby World Cup. I'm not sure that anyone really knows because I still think the big dark horse in all of this is Australia. I genuinely say that. I think the way World Cup yep. tournaments are set up, um, we talk about three big games. I'm not sure that on that side of the draw there are three big games. I think there's definitely two. Um, but I think Australia, it wouldn't surprise me Australia getting through to another final at that World Cup on that side of the draw. I mean, well, it'll be interesting yeah, to see right. what Borthwick or whoever takes over England does and how England come back, um, equally with Wales under Gatland. But boy, I'd rather be on that side of the draw than our side of the draw. Yeah, they've got um, Cockrell's taken over England, isn't it? Oh, has he? Yeah, I, I, I haven't, yeah. Yeah, I haven't yeah. actually uh, he's, he's read any confirmation yeah. on that. Yep. Yeah, he's taken over. And you're right about Australia. They always come. They Look, Australians, one group, they'll fight, and they always come good. They shouldn't have been in that last final because Hubert gave Scotland a dodgy decision. But anyway, they were through there, um, you know, in 2015. But we surely gave them what they deserve. But they do come right. They, they were missing 11 players in that last game. We played them, and we were yah yahing that we beat them. But they get all those players back, and Rennie is a very, very good coach. Very good coach. Well, it's an interesting one so, with Dave Rennie because he's become under criticism for not picking consistent sides, OK? But then at the same time, the biggest problem with Australian rugby has been a lack of depth. So what Dave Rennie's actually trying to do is saying, well, we've got to get the depth right. We've got to have, you know, we've got to have players pushing each other. We've got to have, you know, three strong in each position. But to do that... To do that, he's um, losing tests. And so, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's sort of the chicken and yeah, the egg just, type scenario. Well, I think they're just not buying into it. It's like when we did the rest in rotation. He's doing that, giving those guys, younger guys or new players a chance. Are they up to this level? And at least going into next year, he knows they're either in or they're out. And he doesn't have the cattle like we have here or had here. Um, so he's got to try things, and probably the Aussie public, it's different, different type of um, rugby player over there too. You know, you've got more private school boys playing rugby, so, you know, there's not, I don't know, if they like being told what to do that much. Mm. But that's the same problem, I think, in England. Because um, they've definitely got, you know, look at England. They've got the massive amounts of money, and it's just huge, and they still... You know, I only won that once with Johnny Wilkinson. Mm. Yeah, no, hey. but yeah, I, I, value for money, South Africa at six bucks looks good to me. Yeah, no, fair to say, Dave. Hey, lovely to have you on the program. Try and not get road rage, mate. I struggle every night not to get it, and sometimes it gets on top of me. Anyway, the orange cone, not my friend. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay. please, people out there, vote smart Thank next you. election. Okay, here we go. I shouldn't get into politics, should I? Twenty-two minutes away from ten. You listen. Okay, eighteen minutes away from ten o'clock. Jeff, good evening. Welcome. Thank you for waiting. G'day, Watto. How's it going? Good, thanks. Hey, look, um, I just wanted to raise something. I just want to say Jaden Patel was criminalised as an off-spinner in this country. He was so good, but he obviously, being behind Gamatori, he didn't play as many tests as he should have, but I think that came down to the colour of his skin. What are your thoughts? Oh, look, yeah, I mean, you've always got to be careful around this one, don't you? But... I mean, Daniel Fattori, for me, um, I think he tied up an end. I think a lot of fast bowlers maybe benefited from that. But I think his statistics were more about longevity. Um, has there been a level of prejudice bordering racism um, in this country when it comes to cricket? I would 
I think there's probably Taylor's I, book, Ross Taylor's book, sort of yeah, alluded yeah, to no, institutionalised yeah, racism. And Jen and Patel was one of the the most dominant domestic cricketers. He did it over in the UK. Yeah, he only played before Test Water. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you look at Ravinder at the moment. You go and have a look at um, Ezaz Patel. Um, you do sort of okay, but I'm saying those those those. How do you take how do you take test, how, how do you take ten wickets in an innings and not play the next three test matches? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Look, I agree. I mean, I agree. Look, it's easy if you, if you were to look at it, you can clearly. People are allowed. I think people are allowed to have that discussion and maybe allowed to have that perception. Is there? I, I'd hate to think there's any genuine truth in it. I understand what I do understand what um, Ross Taylor said. I mean, you know, my biggest worry with New Zealand cricketers, you know, I look at, I look at, we know how effective the Indian players are, and we are starting to see more and more come into first class cricket, and more and more are getting opportunities in the black caps more than you know prior to Jeet and Patel and is Jeet and Patel a victim of it well, well I, I don't know I think we're entitled to have the discussion but I mean what's New Zealand cricket doing in South Auckland to, to target the Pacific Island community I went through Mount Abbott Grammar in the 1980s large Pacific student body I saw guys pick up cricket balls who were frighteningly quick who had never really had any coaching had never really been exposed to the game who were Joel Garner Malcolm Marshall types and they still exist I mean look at the Stephen Adams imagine Stephen Adams coming in um, with a cricket ball in his hand and having a bit of a, an understanding of the game what are we doing to tap into that and I, we don't appear to be doing anything because I think New Zealand cricket don't want to and so I think there's some merit in what you're saying, Jeff. No, I appreciate that. What I just, you know, you, you want to raise it a little bit because I, I think I went back to Jaden after thinking a guy taking ten wickets in the innings for the what the third time in Test history, yeah, doesn't make the next Test squad uh, for the next three series. That that just doesn't make sense. Whether no, but you're spinning, he, 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 on a spinning pitch or not. It, You've taken ten wickets in a in an innings. Well, you, you, I mean, you look at Clearly good. Yeah, you, you look at Australia. Nathan Lyon every single test. Uh, Jack Leach for oh, England. Right. He's not that good. They've got a young eighteen-year-old, but they start him every test. We need to do this. You're right. Ajaz Patel should be starting in every test for New Zealand. Give the guy time. Allow him further development. He has got the ability, as we saw against India, in India, he can bowl a side out. See, when Daniel Vittori was bowling, I never, ever felt for any one moment that he could bowl a side out. And every spinner that we've had since then, um, I, I just think they're there just to tie up an end. And, and we've got, if we want to be a world-class test side, we've got to have a world-class spinner. I agree. What I, like, he might be too short, short of a Ferrari, but uh, I'm glad you're on my side, and it's good to hear that you know that we're actually thinking about playing some spinners in this country rather than just playing the same old tried and true mm. pace bowls. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Do appreciate it. Thank you for waiting. Yeah, look, it's always an interesting one. It's a bit of a slippery slope, isn't it? Trying to maybe accuse a sports organisation of racism. Is it racism? Is it just a prejudice? Is it um, an inherent thing that? people are not even aware of. I don't know. Um, but I, I, I guess people are allowed to have that perception, aren't they? Because it's pretty hard when you see guys like Jeet and Patel, when you guys see guys like Arjaz Patel doing what they're doing and not getting picked. And, and I know how the structure used to work here in Auckland, what club you played for, what school you went through. And they were predominantly elitist clubs and elitist schools.
Anyway, you might want to comment. 0800 150 is the number. It's um, quite unbelievable to think that a group of young kids, basically teenagers from the streets of Indiana, wrote that song. Just a love of music that could come up with something as orchestral and as multi-layered as November Rain. Unbelievable, really. Led Zeppelin, very similar. But in John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page, I guess they had a couple of guys who really were quite established session musicians. Guns and Roses, these guys were just rough and raw. You look at Sweet Child of Mine, you look at Paradise City. I mean, there's not a bad song on that Appetite Destruction album. There's not a bad song actually on the Illusions albums. Not paying somebody to write this stuff, base it on their own experiences, sit down, get into a room and just do it. Unbelievable. Looking forward to that concert tomorrow in Wellington, of course. Guns N' Roses play Eden Park in Auckland on Saturday. Uh, just a reminder too, uh, I'm going to put, give this another plug because I'm a big believer, big backer in them. I want to see them do well, but the Auckland Tuatara, the baseball team playing in the Australian Baseball League, high standard of baseball. Uh, they're back in action. They've got their second home series against Melbourne this weekend. They play Friday night, 7 o'clock at North Harbour Stadium, 11, uh, 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock, a doubleheader on Saturday. There'll be about an hour in between games. And then you've also got Sunday morning, um, 11. So look, if you just want something different, if you want a novelty, um, you want to bring the family pretty cheap to get in, good concession stands, good entertainment, um, and I said, really high quality, a lot of players that have played in the major leagues and a lot of players that are on the cusp, a lot of players that are actually signed and affiliated to the major league clubs all here in Auckland, all trying to win this city a championship, this country a championship. And it's a pretty well-established baseball league, the Australian Baseball League. So... Um, yeah, do get yourself along. Hey, just a text that came in earlier from Craig. Good to hear a South African view on Foster that he should have gone but won't. Gats will be 10 men Borfest rugby as per Lions versus South Africa. Yeah, but they might end up winning the Rugby World Cup playing boring 10-man rugby, won't they? So we had Dylan Jack, um, the author at South African Rugby Magazine on the programme. And yeah, I think they were a little sort of amused that Ian Foster retained his job knowing how high the All Blacks set their standards, how important that winning record is and then you've got a guy not winning It'll be one of the big talking points of 2022, it'll be interesting Ian Foster doesn't win that World Cup, he goes down as the worst All Black coach in history doesn't he he'd be much maligned he had a chance to step down but his own arrogance and in my opinion, his his sense of self-importance overrode what was in the greater good of the All Blacks. Incredibly selfish, if you ask me. If we do win the Rugby World Cup, it's not Ian Foster's team. It's his two assistants. Remember, it was his two assistants who were made the scapegoats when they weren't performing. So Joe Schmidt, Jason Ryan, they came in. If we win the Rugby World Cup, then surely, if you're consistent, those two must get the credit. Coming up to four minutes away from 10, you're listening to SENZ. 
10 o'clock. You're listening to SCNZ. Ben, what is the music? Uh, it is a version of the Ghost of Tom Joad, which is a Bruce Springsteen song. Yes. Uh, but this particular version uh, is with Tom Morello, who is the guitarist for Rage Against the Machine. Oh, brilliant. Uh, when Tom Morello was part of the E Street Band, he he actually came down here as part of the E Street Band in 2015. Mm-hmm. I remember. Uh, you can hear it just faintly, but he starts playing these solos on the guitar. He was, he was talking about in his interviews on talking about playing the song and he said that he was so different to what he was expecting he just had to come up with all the stuff up on the fly yeah no I, I, I like it it's got he's got his own um, he's got his own sound hasn't he with right his up. guitar playing Eddie Van Halen's got his sound Slash has his sound I think when you go through and you look at all the great Rock bands, they all have their own unique sound. Anyway, telephone number is 0800-150811 if you do wish to phone the program. We are taking your calls. You might want to talk some music with us. Text us here on 8833. Uh, look, um, we're going to bring you an interview a little bit later if you've just joined us on the program. Um, with Rob Emery, Rock and Rob Emery, catcher for the Auckland Tuatara baseball team. Um, really interesting. Always fascinated to find out what Americans think of the standard of baseball down here, uh, what their expectations were before they arrived on the shores, and yeah, how they how they themselves feel like they're playing. Um, you've got to be pretty damn good to get a contract to even get a minor league contract in the United States when you consider how many kids get to play the sport of baseball over there. It is huge. It is very much their pastime. So we'll do that around about 10.30 tonight. But it is a chance for you to have your say on 0800 150 I got a little bit of talk back earlier. We had on the program Dylan Jack, who is the author of the New Zealand, uh, South African Rugby magazine. Interesting that he sort of said that most South Africans felt that Ian Foster probably should have gone earlier in the year and are probably quite pleased that he stayed. But you still feel that South Africa go into this next World Cup as favourites. How do France and Ireland deal with the pressure of expectation coming in as the favoured nations? I don't think Ireland dealt with it too well back in 2019. 0800-150-811 if you want to talk on that topic. We had Martin Cross, the voice of international rowing on the program too, talking about Mahe Drysdale. Drysdale being picked up as the Thomas Kelleher medal winner, which is the highest award that the Rowing Federation, International Rowing Federation can hand out. Now, Waddell, five-time world champion, two-time Olympic champion. Where does he sit amongst our all-time greats? He's got to be right in the mix, doesn't he? Rowing is a brutal sport. Had someone earlier texting in saying, look, it's still Peter Snell for me. Rowing doesn't seem to have perhaps the international depth that, say, athletics does. Well, yes and no. I think when Peter Snell was winning, you didn't really have the African nations. They sort of started to emerge 1964 after Snell had won. But there's a reason why rowing might not have mass participation at an elite, well, 
once you leave school or once you get out of university. That's because it is just so damn hard. So those that do continue with rowing are X-factor athletes. They're statistical outliers. So there might not be as many that perhaps play rugby or soccer or football, whatever you want to call it. But those that do are extraordinary, which makes being the best individual rower in the world one of the great achievements. Got a rich history. So where does he sit? 0800 150 is the number. You can text us here on 8833. Now, we sort of went on this theme the other night um, regarding trophies. The FIFA Football World Cup trophy is just a stunning trophy, isn't it? That means trophy stunning. The women's trophy is nice. A lot of people probably won't be as familiar with it. It's a really nice trophy too, the women's one. So just picking up on the theme from last night, what are the nice trophies? What are the great trophies, the ones that you go, man, I'd love that in my mantelpiece. Man, whoever designed that is so cool. And you've got the America's Cup. I think the Stanley Cup is unique. I love the Stanley Cup in ice hockey. Huge. Um, probably the biggest trophy in sport. You win the Stanley Cup, your name gets etched onto the trophy. And once the trophy fills up, a layer of the silver, I'm not sure if it's from the top or the bottom, with those names and those teams, gets removed and gets put into the Hall of Fame. That every player gets their name etched on that trophy. Every player gets to keep it. So, look, just a couple of um, topics there. Anything else that you do want to mention? Uh, Michael Holdsworth just saying that I see Dame Patsy, Re- Dame Patsy Reddy elected as New Zealand's rugby chair. And that comes from Michael Holdsworth, former Governor-General. Look, yeah, I saw this. I don't think it's a box-ticking exercise. I read her credentials. I get a bit cynical these days with a lot of the box-ticking that does go on and this sort of gender um, politics or this group identity politics. I hope she's got and her fellow board members are not just looking at the bottom line, not just looking at the financial position and actually understand that the game is in trouble here and start actually addressing the issues because rugby is going to fall over really, really quickly at the rate that we're eroding the game in this country. They jump up and down and they're pretty damn happy when they pick up their $230 million deals overseas. But ignore some of the intangible things that are going on. Graham, good evening. Welcome. Oh, g'day, Wado. How are you? Good, thanks. Have a great time tomorrow at the uh, Guns N' Roses concert. Oh, I will, Graham. I will. I'll behave myself. I've decided... I've just bought a ticket in the seats, actually. I, I, I can't do the whole standing around with the masses now. I just need to sit back and reflect and enjoy this one, I think. So I've, I've got to take it up. What do they call it, the moss pit or something no, yeah, like I can't that? No, I can't do that. I've done that previously. Yeah. I, was, I was very lucky at the <laughs> Use Your Illusions Tour in 92 where I was right up the front. I actually went with um, two fine Auckland rugby players and Craig Dowd and, and a, a player that I think they should name the Canterbury Stadium after if they ever build it. <laughs> and, and, and we're talking Mark Carter. Oh, <laughs> You're joking. No, I did. I went with those two guys to Guns N' Roses, yeah. Oh, really? And I'm not joking about I'm not joking about Mark Carterfield and Christchurch either. <laughs> well, yeah, over my dead body, but you know, I don't want to say that. You know, that could that could be arranged by some Auckland people, but you're yeah, Wellington, so yeah, but mm. yeah, no. No, oh really. Oh, that 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 is amazing um 
revelation. I didn't. By you, I didn't. Mark. I didn't really know them. I knew Craig a little bit for some work I was looking to do. I didn't know them, but Craig brought oh, Mark Craig, along, yeah, and then it was like we went to the front, and it was like the parting of the Red Sea. Craig walked through the middle. Everybody opened up, and there I was, right front row. Yeah, it was great. But um, yeah, tomorrow I'm just going to sit in the stand and enjoy it. Yep. Good, good work. Yeah, no, um, November Rain, great. That's one of my favourites. Oh, great song, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's one of, it's sort of like, yeah, it's one of, yeah, it's just such a great build-up and, you know, the whole, you know, uh, the way it finishes. But, yeah, just on you know, a bit of Marty Drysdale and the rugby, the South African guy you spoke to before, yeah, I mean, I just think Drysdale, yeah, I mean, he, I remember when he got the bronze and, was it 2008 in Beijing, you know, I mean, he had, you know, chronic stomach problems and, you know, I mean, he well, would have got gold, I'm sure, and he's stuck in a, I mean, you can well, only imagine. The biggest, the biggest problem in 2008, and people Eight. don't remember this, is that he'd actually won the world championships in 2007 and then we had a situation where... Um, Rob, Rob, yeah, Rob Waddell decided that he wanted to get out of yep. the America's Cup and come back and have another crack. And so suddenly they said, well, we'll have a row-off. And I didn't feel that was right. I felt that Drysdale had been there all year. He'd won the World Championship. He deserved the right to go. Um, so, but, you know, in saying that, Waddell was the defending champion, but I still felt that he was right. So rather than putting your feet up and resting, which he should have been doing because that was the end of his season and periodization sometimes by putting your feet up, you're actually getting faster, not slower. He was suddenly to get back into a boat, get himself fit enough to beat Rob Waddell. And I think that I think that was part of the reason by the time he got to August that year, I think his nervous system was pretty frayed and I think it was part of the reason why he got sick. Yeah, well, a cousin of mine is involved with New Zealand rowing. I remember he he was up there, part of, you know, that whole, they had that big... Um, they had the, I was in the March, I think it was up in the Waikato, you know, mm. the Ruatanafa, Ru- is it? Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, so, no, no, so you, you've got Karapiro in the north and Ruatanafa down in the south. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, Karapiro is yeah. the one. But I remember they were up there, sorry. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they had the they had the big, you know, you know race-off between Waddell mm. and Drysdale, you know, mm. and it was, mm. you know, I mean, they both should have been there. But, you know, but, but, I mean, but that's the that's the oddity, isn't it? A lot of other sports, you're allowed the three best, and you go to the oh, Olympic no, Games. Oh that's ridiculous. You're only allowed one, and you might have a country with the two best in the world. So in some events, oh, are you the best in the world? No, you're not. You're the best at the Olympics. But the guy that should have got silver is sitting back in your country because you're only allowed to send one. I mean, kayaking was the first time this year at the Olympics that we could have more than one athlete in the same race. Yeah, I mean, but that was just absolutely, you know, just not right that mm. they had to race off to be. You know, um, you know, in that position, you know, because I mean, Waddell had already, you know, made his pass, and you know, obviously, in 2012, I think, you know, um, May Drysdale, you know, got got the gold. Um, was it 2012 or 16? He eventually got the gold. No, he got 212, and then he won it in 216. In the yeah, in the... that's right, both. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, he's. He, he is, he, you know, even with the lack of, because I mean, in New Zealand, as you know, with rugby, as much as I love it, you know, that they get people get knighted and all sorts mm. for winning, um, you know, you know, World Cups or coaching them. Um, but yeah, but on the rugby, yeah, I mean, you know, you're right. It's interesting the overseas response, and you know, all power to what Warren Gatlin said the other day um, about Scott Robertson. You know, I think. Because people, those guys have been overseas and they're not tied to the New Zealand rugby um, apron strings either, so they can, 
you know. Well, I mean, they, it's, in, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Chris Boyd wasn't afraid to speak out. Dave Rennie wasn't afraid to speak out. Warren Gatlin no, wasn't exactly. afraid to speak out. And people are actually missing the point here. The point is, mate, this is an old boys network. This is cloak and dagger stuff. This is dark rooms and... Um, you know, a nasty, nasty Game of Thrones. Yeah, nasty group of people behind the scenes who have an agenda and there's a lot of nepotism and I think it frustrates a lot of the coaches in this country. I mean oh, there's no right. way look there's no way in hell Ian Foster should have ever have been all black coach. I mean it's just no, the dumbest no, decision. No, no. It just reeks of Hanson, it just reeks of nepotism, it's destroyed the game and it's yep. just gut wrenching. It is, and you know, Boyd and all those guys, all, they, they've all got super rugby, people talk, say what they like about super rugby, but Boyd won at 216 with the Hurricanes, um, Rennie uh, 12 and 13 with the Chiefs and blah, 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 and, and you know, um, Gatlin's done, you know, what he did well with the Lions, you know, drew a series here, but we can say what we mm. like at the third test, but but nevertheless, that, you know, you know, and he's done other things too, and um, and as you say, it is the back room, and as you say, handsome, you know, um, there's no doubt about it. You know, yeah, it's a dirty tricks brigade went on a bit there, and it, and it went on for uh, before that, but and and it still lingers to this day. Oh, but, it, but, but it went right on for Mark Robertson being appointed as CEO. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable, Graham. Hey, look, I, I, I do have to move on, Graham, but I do appreciate... No, no. Yep. I, 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 sorry, I do appreciate your call. I've just got a really big yeah. ad log that I've got to get through before no, no, I play the interview at 10.30. But do take care, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk before Christmas. Uh, thank you. It is... Um, what is it? It is 14 minutes after 10. We had a great call earlier from Jeff. Um asking the question whether or not there might be uh, was a racism run through New Zealand cricket or is it just a, a subconscious prejudice? Um, and it's an interesting one and I think you're allowed to have the discussion, aren't you, even in an environment where perhaps you're not. Um, but you do look at Asia's Patel, uh, Ravinder. Um, how do you take 10 wickets in a match and not get picked? I know from my experiences playing cricket back in the 1980s, absolutely you had to go to the right school. Absolutely you had to play for the right cricket club if you wanted to get selected. I remember leaving school and going out with a girl who had come through a private school and a lot of the friends and their boyfriends came through private boys' schools. And you'd be playing a bit of backyard cricket with these guys hanging out over the holidays and... Someone says, oh, he's played for Auckland. And you look at him and go, really? Really? He played for Auckland? I went through school with guys who were superstars in comparison and never got picked for any rep team. And in a country this small, we can't afford to be doing that. And I think, I think it has genuinely changed here. Like you are seeing more and more Indian players coming through. Uh, clubs like Suburbs, New Lynn and Auckland are a breeding ground now. We've seen more kids come out of schools like Avondale College getting selected. But I still just wonder whether in some camps there is still just that little bit of prejudice um, that might exist. I might be wrong, but I think it's still worth the discussion, isn't it? One of those ones you've got to tiptoe around these days. 0800 150811 if you do want to phone the programme you can text us here on 8833 that is the number we're going to bring you an interview very shortly with the catcher for the Auckland Tuatara they play this weekend they take on the Melbourne Aces looking forward to it Rob Emery is his name
and he, out of the San Francisco Giants organization. This year he actually played AAA, which is one tier below majors. And he's the catcher. Hopefully they can sweep the series. Almost halfway through the season, 40 regular games in the ABL before we go into the playoffs. So another home series over the new year period and then another one early in January and then another series in mid-January. So plenty of baseball to look forward to before we do get into the playoffs. Keep your texts coming here on 8833. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more.